Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. In the name of Allah, the most gracious, ever merciful. You're listening to the audiobook of Brahine Ahmadiyya, Arguments in Support of the Holy Quran and the Prophethood of the Holy Prophet Muhammad Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, Parts 1 and 2, by Hazrat Mirza Ghulam Ahmad of Qadian, the Promised Messiah and Mahdi. Narrated by Atif Rashid About the author Hazrat Mirza Ghulam Ahmad was born in 1835 in Qadian, India. From his early life he dedicated himself to prayer and the study of the Holy Quran and other scriptures. He was deeply pained to observe the plight of Islam which was being attacked from all directions. In order to defend Islam and present its teachings in their pristine purity, he wrote more than 90 books, thousands of letters, and participated in many religious debates. He argued that Islam is a living faith which can lead man to establish communion with God and achieve moral and spiritual perfection. Hazrat Mirza Ghulam Ahmad al-Islam started experiencing divine dreams, visions, and revelations at a young age. This communication continued to increase and he was commanded by God to announce that God had appointed him to be the same reformer of the latter days as prophesied by various religions under different titles. He also claimed to be the promised Messiah and Mahdi whose advent had been prophesied by the Holy Prophet Muhammad sallallahu alaihi wasallam. In 1889 under divine command he started accepting initiation into the Ahmadiyya Muslim community which is now established in more than 200 countries. After his demise in 1908, the institution of Khilafat or successorship was established to succeed him in fulfillment of the prophecies made in the Holy Quran and by the Holy Prophet Muhammad sallallahu alaihi wasallam. Hazrat Mirza Masroor Ahmad Ayyadullah Ta'ala bin Nasihil Aziz is the fifth successor to the promised Messiah alayhi islam and the present head of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community. Introduction by Hazrat Khalifatul Masih the Fifth. May Allah be his help. Brahine Ahmadiyya parts 1 and 2 were authored by Hazrat Mirza Ghulam Ahmad alayhi islam of Qadian and published in 1880. At that time, the Indian subcontinent had become a virtual battleground for the major religions of the world. Islam, in particular, found itself on the defensive against the onslaughts of Christians and Hindus who spared no ploy to defame the faith and its founder, sallallahu alayhi wasallam. Hazrat Mirza Ghulam Ahmad alayhi islam, pained by these unjust attacks, undertook a series of debates and discourses with Christians and Hindus. He himself describes the pain that he suffered as follows. My purpose, yearning, and heartfelt desire is to serve humanity. This is my job, this is my faith, this is my habit, and this is my way of life. Finding the world in darkness, I prayed to my Lord. May he grant my prayers of the small hours of the night. Establishing faith in Tawheed, or oneness of God, which he found only in Islam, was his primary concern. He writes, What I am trying to demonstrate by writing all this is that Tawheed, in its purest form, is not to be found among any people on the face of the earth except the followers of the Holy Prophet, may peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, 
and there is no book upon the earth other than the Holy Quran that has firmly committed millions to this holy doctrine and that leads mankind so reverentially towards the one true God. People of every religion have created artificial gods for themselves, whereas the God of the Muslims is the one, eternal and immutable God whose attributes are the same today as they were before. At last, as a conclusive argument against the detractors of Islam, he decided to write Rahine Ahmadiyya, a compendium of arguments for the truth of the Holy Qur'an and Islam. He announced a reward of 10,000 rupees, the sum total of his considerable wealth at that time. For anyone who could counter even a fraction of these arguments or produce similar arguments from their own scriptures, a challenge that remains uncontested to this day. He also laid down upright rules for religious dialogue and discussion. He says, Anyone who wishes to reply to this book must respond in two ways as per the conditions laid down in the challenge in part 1. They must produce arguments from their own scriptures for comparison with the arguments of the Holy Quran and must also refute the arguments I have given. If they fail to present comparable evidence from their own scriptures and focus entirely on countering my arguments, it will be taken to mean that they are totally incapable of providing evidence for the divine origin of their book. Based on the Holy Qur'an, he declared that all religious founders whose teachings have become widespread must be honoured and accepted as true. He also appealed for due courtesy in all religious discussions. Brahine Ahmadiyya was started with the intent of providing 300 rational arguments in support of the divine origin of the Holy Qur'an and the truthfulness of the Holy Prophet While still writing Brahine Ahmadiyya, Hazrat Ahmad started receiving an abundance of divine revelations, many of which are recorded in parts 3 and 4. He states at the end of part 4, In the beginning when I wrote this book, the situation was very different from now. Thereafter, the providence of Allah the Almighty descended upon me with the spiritual light that made me aware, like Moses, of which I was totally unaware before. I was wondering, like Hazrat ibn Imran, in the dark night of my own ideas when suddenly I heard the voice from the unseen, Inni ana rabbuk, verily I am your Lord. Thereafter, such secrets were revealed to me as I had not thought or imagined. Therefore, Allah the Almighty is now the guardian and manager of this book, both manifestly and intrinsically. I do not know what his will is as to its size. The fact is that the blessings of the divine origin of Islam, which have been manifested up to part 4, are sufficient to bring the argument home. I hope that with his grace and munificence, he will continue to grace me with his support from the unseen till the darkness of doubts and suspicions is totally dissipated. Brahine Ahmadiyya, Part 4, Rouhani Kuzain, Volume 1, page 673. Under divine command, he founded the Ahmadiyya Muslim Jamaat in 1889 and invited all the righteous to take the Beth Pledge of Allegiance. Later, he claimed to be the same Mahdi and promised Messiah whose advent had been prophesied by the Holy Prophet for the latter days. Brahine Ahmadiyya Part 3 records a dream which the promised Messiah saw in his early youth that is specifically related to Brahine Ahmadiyya. He relates, My humble self saw Hazrat Khatmul Anbiya, the seal of the prophets, may peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, in a dream in 1864 or 1865 in my early youth, when I was still pursuing my studies. In my dream, I had in my hand a religious book, which I felt was of my own authorship. 
Upon seeing the book, the Holy Prophet, may peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, inquired from me in Arabic, How have you named this book? I submitted, I have named it Qutbi. The interpretation of this name has now come to my mind on the publication of this well-publicized book, Brahina Ahmadiyya, that is, a book which in its reasoning and arguments is firm and unshakable like the polar star. Presenting the firmness of the contents of this book, I have issued a challenge and announced the award of a prize of 10,000 rupees for anyone who might be able to refute it. In short, the Holy Prophet ﷺ took that book from me. The moment the blessed hands of the Holy Prophet ﷺ touched it, it became an attractive and lovely fruit resembling a guava but as large as a watermelon. When the Holy Prophet ﷺ started cutting it into pieces to distribute it, it yielded so much honey that his blessed hand and forearm began to drip with it. Then a dead body that was lying outside the door came to life as a miracle of the Holy Prophet ﷺ and came and stood behind me. My humble self was standing before the Holy Prophet ﷺ as a supplicant stands before a ruler. The Holy Prophet ﷺ was occupying his chair in great glory and majesty and with display of authority as if he was a great champion. To summarize, the Holy Prophet ﷺ handed over to me a piece of the fruit so that I might give it to the newly revived person and he bestowed upon me all the remaining pieces. I gave that one piece to the revived person, which he ate immediately. When he finished eating it, I noticed that the blessed chair of the Holy Prophet, may peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, had risen much higher, and the countenance of the Holy Prophet, may peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, began to shine forth like the rays of the sun, which is an indication of the revival and progress of Islam. While watching this display of light, I woke up. Walhamdulillahi ala zalik. Allah be praised for all this. As the fifth successor to the promised Messiah, I appeal to all fair-minded people to study Brahina Ahmadiyya with care and attention and to accept its message if they find it based on truth and honesty. For those who wish to defend their own faith, I request that the rules of fairness and courtesy be maintained in whatever they write to counter his arguments or to present the like from their own scriptures. I also invite all good Muslims to heed the admonition of the Holy Prophet ﷺ that When you find the Mahdi, perform bath at his hand. You must go to him even if you have to reach him across ice-bound mountains on your knees. He is the Khalifa of Allah. He is the Mahdi. Sunan Ibn Majah, Kitabul Fitan, Babu Khurujul Mahdi. Hadith number 4074. I also remind Ahmadi Muslims that being fortunate to have recognized the Khalifa of Allah, the Mahdi, they need to study the works of the Promised Messiah and inculcate the habit of reading them among their children. Therein you will find the life giving spiritual water to sustain and foster your faith. As the Promised Messiah says, I tell you truly that those who were revived by the Messiah, Jesus, are dead, but he who will drink of the cup that has been bestowed upon me will never die. If there is anyone else who can also utter the life-giving words that I speak and proclaim such wisdom as I do, then you are at liberty to conclude that I have not come from God Almighty. 
However, if this wisdom and understanding, which serves as the water of life for those whose hearts are dead, is not procurable from any other source, then you have no excuse for the crime of having rejected the fountain that has been opened from heaven. No one on earth can stop it. Izala e Oham, Rohani Kuzain, Volume 3, page 104. The Jamaat has already published English translations of over 30 books of the Promised Messiah Islam, and further publications continue. The translation of Brahina Ahmadiyya constitutes a landmark because it is widely recognized as his magnum opus which laid down the themes which are further elaborated in his later works. The Promised Messiah was informed in a divine revelation that Allah the Almighty will carry his message to the ends of the earth. In his own lifetime, the facilities for this propagation had already started appearing. As he says, The phrase, when the books are spread abroad, refers to the means for publication like the printing press. As you see, Allah the Almighty has raised a nation which has invented the instruments for printing, how many are the printing presses working in India and other countries? This is God's doing, so that he may assist in my task and may spread my teachings and my books and convey to every nation the wisdom contained in my writings so that they may listen and be guided. aina e kamalate islam Rohani Khuzain, Volume 5, page 473 Translated from Arabic by the grace of God Almighty, the Ahmadiyya Muslim community continues to avail itself of the fast-growing facilities for printing and publication. The message of the Promised Messiah Islam is conveyed to more than 200 countries around the globe through the Muslim television Ahmadiyya. Our internet presence, www.alislam.org, is a comprehensive source of knowledge and information about Islam, Ahmadiyyat. The translation of the original works of the Promised Messiah has accelerated because of the availability of various electronic media which make it possible to speed up work, readily consult different source materials and bring about coordination and cooperation between the devotees of the Promised Messiah serving in different countries. Mirza Masrur Ahmad, Khalifatul Masih V, London, June 11, 2012 Part 1. Truth has come and falsehood has vanished away. Falsehood does indeed vanish away fast. With the infinite grace of Allah, the guide of the whole world and the entire universe, and by the perfect mercy of Him, guide to those who are lost, this irrefutable book, named Brahine Ahmadiyya, namely, Arguments in Support of the Holy Qur'an, and the Prophethood of the Holy Prophet Muhammad wasallam, Published by Pride of the Muslims, Mirza Ghulam Ahmad, Chief of Qadian, Gurdaspur District, Punjab, with thorough research and investigation as a conclusive argument for those who deny the truth of Islam, along with a prize of 10,000 rupees. Amritsar, Punjab. Printed at the Safir Hind Press, 1880 CE. Considering that it points to the path of salvation, how wonderful it is that the year of the publication, 1297 A.H., is represented by the phrase, Ya Ghafoor, O Forgiving Lord. Subhanallah, holy is Allah, what a wonderful book it is. 
it makes one familiar with the true faith in a short time. Translation of the original Urdu title page for part 1. Announcement Note by Hazrat Mulana Jalaluddin Shams Razilanho. This announcement is included in the first and third edition, but not in the second. A submission regarding the price of the book Brahini Ahmadiyya and another important matter. I would like to submit for the kind attention of all honourable and respected buyers of Brahini Ahmadiyya that this is a fairly sizable book comprising more than 100 Jews. Publisher footnote, the Jews meaning part referred to here, comprises 16 pages. End of publisher footnote. And by the time the complete book is printed, its volume is expected to increase further on account of the footnotes that will be added to it from time to time. It is being printed on high-quality paper, in beautiful script, satisfying all the requirements of style and elegance. This is why the actual cost of publication has been estimated at 25 rupees per volume. Initially, the price was fixed at 5 rupees, so that as it was then proposed, the book may become generally available to the Muslims and no one may have any difficulty in acquiring it. I had hoped that well-to-do Muslims who are also generous and resolute would lend wholehearted support to this immensely important book and the difference would thus be covered, but somehow this hope has not yet been realised. Most people have not purchased more than one or two copies, with the exception of His Excellency Hazrat Khalifa, Sayyid Muhammad Hassan Khan Bahadur, Dastur-e-Muazzam, Prime Minister and Member Council of Regency of the state of Patiala, Punjab, who has bought 50 copies for distribution among students who cannot afford it and has paid their full price as published in the announcement. He has also been of great help in introducing it to other buyers and has promised to help in other ways as well. May God recompense him for it and reward him abundantly. The current situation is that although, according to the announcement published on December the 3rd, 1879, the price has been fixed at 10 rupees instead of 5, it is still discounted by one and a half times the cost price. Please note that the new rate does not apply to those who had already made payments before the publication of the announcement. Through this announcement, I wish to appeal to all esteemed buyers whose names I am honoured to record below and to other affluent and generous people who are engaged in helping the cause of Islam that they should come forward in support of this worthy cause that has been undertaken to establish the supremacy of Islam and whose benefits will not be limited to their own persons but will reach thousands of servants of God for all times to come. Number 1. Nawab Shah Jahan Begum, GCSI, CI, Ruler of Bhopal. Number 2. Nawab Alauddin Ahmad Khan Bahadur, ruler of Loharu. Number 3. Molvi Muhammad Shirag Ali Khan, assistant deputy to the Prime Minister of the State of Hyderabad, Tekan. Number 4. Ghulam Qadir Khan, minister of the State of Nalagar, Punjab. Number 5. Nawab Mukharramu Dawla Bahadur, Hyderabad. Number 6. Nawab Nazirud Dawla Bahadur, Popol. Number 7. Nawab Sultanud Dawla Bahadur Bhopal. Number 8. Nawab Ali Muhammad Khan Bahadur Ludhiana, Punjab. Number 9. Nawab Ghulam Mahbub Subhani Khan Bahadur Raise Azam Lahore. Number 10. Sardar Ghulam Muhammad Khan Rais Wa. Number 11. Mirza Sayyiduddin Ahmad Khan Bahadur 
Extra Assistant Commissioner Ferozpur. The Holy Prophet, may peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, said that there is no action more appropriate for man than that he should expend his energies in helping people to attain the bliss of the hereafter. If all the gentlemen addressed above respond to this appeal, I am sure that this task, that requires plenty of funds and, as things stand, involves numerous difficulties, will be accomplished with great ease. I hope and pray that God will not allow this immensely important endeavour to go in vain. In the past, many great objectives of our faith have been achieved in miraculous ways. I hope that even today someone from the unseen will come forward with help. We place our trust in Allah. He is an excellent friend and an excellent helper. Announced by the author Mirza Ghulam Ahmad, Chief of Qadian, District Gurdaspur, Punjab. An apology. The first half of this book should have been published by now, but it has been delayed by up to seven or eight months due to illness and some other unforeseen complications faced by the owner of Safira Hind Press, Amritsar, Punjab, where the book is being printed. God willing, there will be no such delays in future. Ghulam Ahmad An urgent appeal by the author. How can I express my gratitude to the Lord of the Worlds, who first made it possible for my humble self to write this book by his help, grace and divine support, and then brought it to the attention of Muslim leaders, elders, noblemen and other brothers in faith and invested them with the desire that it should be printed, published and promoted, I must express my gratitude to all those who helped me and whose generosity kept my religious objectives and efforts from going in vain. Indeed, I am so obliged to them for their help that I have no words with which to thank them when I observe how so many of them have done their utmost to help this noble cause and some of them have promised to make even more contributions, it further deepens my feelings of gratitude towards them. At the end of this statement, I have recorded the worthy names of all the generous and dedicated people who have helped this cause by purchasing copies of the book or contributing towards its publication. I will continue to acknowledge such contributions until the whole book has been printed so that as long as it continues to be a source of benefit for the world, anyone who profits from it and spends a pleasant time reading it may pray for me and all who have helped me. Here I deem it necessary to make special mention of the fact that thus far the greatest contribution towards the promotion of this worthy cause has been made by Hazrat Khalifa Sayyid Muhammad Hassan Khan Bahadur, the Sture Muazzam, Prime Minister and Member Council of Regency of the State of Patiala. This gentleman, out of his immense generosity and love for the faith, has contributed 325 rupees for the purchase of this book, 250 rupees of which are from his own pocket and 75 rupees have been contributed by his friends through his good offices. In his kind letter, His Excellency the Prime Minister, a man of noble qualities, has promised to make further contributions until the book is complete and also to introduce it to other likely buyers. Likewise, Hazrat Fakhrud Dawla, Nawab Mirza Muhammad Alauddin Ahmad Khan Bahadur, Ruler of the state of Loharu has sent 40 rupees, 20 of which are a donation. He has also promised further help and support in the future. The keen interest shown by Nawab Shah Jahan Begum, member of the Imperial Order of the Crown of India, CI, Knight Grand Commander of the Most Exalted Order of the Star of India, GCSI, 
ruler of Bhopal, may her prosperity endure, also deserves my profound gratitude. She, in keeping with her noble qualities of kindness and compassion towards humankind, has also pledged to buy copies of the book. I very much hope that this esteemed lady shall give her undivided attention to this noble cause, which is meant to reveal the truthfulness and majesty of Hazrat Khatamul Ambiya, the seal of the Prophet's may peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, to make the proofs of the divine origin of Islam as clear as the day, and to be a source of immeasurable benefit for mankind. Here I must also appeal to other Muslim noblemen and elders who are as yet unaware of this book, that if they can assist with its publication even to a minor extent, they will be of great help in facilitating the process of its publication and making the book generally available, which is my earnest and heartfelt desire. Worthy elders, beacons of Islam, you are surely aware that in this age, the propagation of the proofs of the divine origin of Islam has acquired a crucial importance and teaching our children and families the arguments in support of Islam has become such an obligation and obvious necessity that it cannot be overstressed. No one can be ignorant of the extent to which beliefs have become corrupted and distorted in this age and how people have become dishonest and perverse in their thinking. Diverse types of deviant thoughts are gaining ground. Evil winds are blowing and fumes of vice and false beliefs have enveloped the world. Everyone who is aware of these tempestuous winds, capable of uprooting the greatest of trees, will realize that this book has not been written without an urgent necessity. False beliefs and corrupt ideas find expression in different forms at different times. To refute them, God, by His grace, causes books to be written that vigorously counter such criticisms in the light of His word, reduce the critics to silence and completely incriminate them by means of irrefutable arguments. It is in this manner that the tree of Islam stands evergreen, fresh and verdant. Honourable elders of Islam, from your own knowledge and experience, you cannot be unaware of the ills of the present age, the details of which are a painful story indeed, nor can you be unaware of all the forms of corruption that have taken root in people's hearts or how they are being led astray by evil suggestions temptations and misguidance, and it is all because people are unaware of the arguments for the divine origin of Islam. The few who are educated have acquired their knowledge from schools or institutions that impart no religious knowledge, thus the crucial part of their lives in which they can employ their faculties of thought, reflection and meditation to the best advantage is lost in pursuit of other arts and sciences, leaving them completely ignorant of religious principles. If such people are not informed sooner rather than later of the arguments in support of the divine origin of Islam, they either end up as materialistic worldly creatures, caring the least for the faith, or as atheists and apostates. This is not something hypothetical, for I myself have seen that the scions of noble families have been baptized and have taken to the churches solely because of their ignorance of the teachings of Islam, had not God in his infinite grace helped Islam and had he not protected the true faith through the forceful discourses and writings of Muslim scholars, people would have even forgotten in which country our holy prophet, may peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, was born. This is especially so in these tumultuous times when perversity and corruption are rife. If Muslim scholars who are valiantly and vigorously debating with every disbeliever and atheist were to give up this service to Islam, all the important traditions of Islam would soon disappear. Instead of the traditional salutation, Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuhu, one would only hear goodbye and good morning. Thus, 
to be engaged with zeal and sincerity in the propagation of the divine origin of Islam is an act of mercy towards one's own children and progeny, for no one is immune to the toxic winds that blow during an epidemic. Some people may harbour doubts about this book and ask, are the books that are already written on religious subjects not sufficient to refute and silence the critics? Why do we need another book? Let it be clear that this book is unlike any other in its effectiveness. All those books have been written in the context of a particular faith and their arguments are confined to refuting the specific beliefs of that faith. No matter how great or scholarly those books may be, they serve only the people to whom they have been addressed. This book, on the other hand, proves the divine origin of Islam and the superiority of the teachings of Islam over all faiths and establishes the authenticity of the Holy Quran through a comprehensive inquiry. It is obvious that truths that unfold in such a manner can never be revealed through focused arguments. When debating with the people of a particular faith, one does not need to provide in-depth and solid arguments regarding beliefs that they already hold. Instead, one relies primarily on accusatory answers and rarely resorts to logic and reason. By their very nature, such debates do not necessitate philosophical probing, let alone exhaustive reasoning. Only a fraction of rational arguments is employed in such debates. For instance, if we debate someone who already believes in the existence of God and his revelation and creative power, it would not be necessary to provide him rational arguments for the existence of the creator, need for revelation, and the creative powers of Almighty Allah. It would in fact be absurd to start a debate about something that is not even contested. However, when one confronts a variety of doctrines, beliefs, doubts, and apologies, one cannot afford to leave anything out. Likewise, arguments written in refutation of a particular faith will not, in general, be applicable to another. For instance, when we quote prophecies from the Holy Bible in support of the truthfulness of the prophethood of Hazrat Khatmul Anbiya, the seal of the prophets, may peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, we may be able to convince the Christians and the Jews, but a Hindu or a Zoroastrian or a philosopher or a Brahmu Samajist would not accept evidence based on a book in which he does not believe. He would respond that since he does not believe in those books, any argument based on them is not acceptable to him. The same will be the answer of the Christians to anything worthwhile that we might present to them from the Vedas. This is why a book was urgently required to demonstrate through rational arguments, the authenticity and divine origin of Islam in a manner that convinces all the other faiths. And, alhamdulillah, all praise belongs to God, that this book, which meets all these objectives, has been so prepared. The second distinction of this book is that it contains a most effective method for refuting the baseless objections of Islam's opponents and completing our argument against them. That is to say... It includes a challenge that offers a reward of 10,000 rupees to opponents so that they may not be left without any excuses. It places upon them a heavy burden which they will not be able to shed till doomsday, a burden that will embitter their self-contradictory lives in such a way that only they will know. In short, this is a very vital and important book. It will be of immense benefit to the seekers after truth, for it makes the divine origin of Islam as evident as the sun and reveals the grandeur and glory of the holy scripture on which depends Islam's honor, supremacy and truthfulness. List of gentlemen who on account of their love for the faith helped in the publication of Brahine Ahmadiyya or obliged by buying copies of the book. 
names of gentlemen who helped by purchasing copies of the book or through donations. Number 1. Khalifa Sayyid Muhammad Hassan Khan Bahadur, Dasture Muazzam, Prime Minister and Member Council of Regency of the State of Patiala. Total contribution, 325 rupees towards the purchase of the book. Personal contribution, 250 rupees. Contribution by other friends, 325 rupees. Those who contributed through the good offices of the above gentlemen. A. Molvi Fazl Hakim, 5 rupees, towards the purchase of the book. B. Khuda Bakhsh Khan, Master, 5 rupees. C. Sayyid Muhammad Ali, Office in Charge, Cantonment Construction, 5 rupees. D. Molvi Ahmad Hassan, son of Molvi Ali Ahmad, 5 rupees. E. Ghulam Nabi Khan, Clerk, Nizamat, Karamgar, 5 rupees. F. Kail Khan, Nazim, Karamgar, 5 rupees. G. Dr. Sheikh Karimullah, Nazim, Preventative Health, 5 rupees. H. Sheikh Fakhruddin, Civil Judge, 5 rupees. I. Sayyid Inayat Ali Jarnel, 5 rupees. J. Balo Khan, Jamadar Jails, 5 rupees. K. Mir Sadruddin, Record Keeper, Nizamat Karamgar, 5 rupees. L. Mir Hidayat Hussain of Basi, Nizamat Sirhind, 5 rupees. M. Sayyid Niaz Ali Nazim Canals, 5 rupees. N. Sayyid Nisar Ali Advocate, Commissionerate, Ambala, 5 rupees. Number 2. Hazrat Fakhrud Dawla, Nawab Mirza Muhammad Alauddin Ahmad Khan Bahadur, Ruler of the State of Loharu, 40 rupees. 20 rupees towards the purchase of the book, 20 rupees as a donation only. Number 3. Molvi Muhammad Sharag Ali Khan Bahadur, Deputy Secretary, Hyderabad, Deccan, 10 rupees, as donation only for the publication of the book. Number 4. Nawab Ghulam Mahbube Subhani Bahadur, Chieftain Lahore, 5 rupees, for the publication of the book. Number 5. Muhammad Abdullah Bihari, Chieftain, Calcutta, 5 rupees, as a gift. Number 6. Nawab Mukharramud Dawla, Sadar ul Maham, Principal Officer, Land Revenue State of Hyderabad, 10 rupees. Number 7. Nawab Ali Muhammad Khan Bahadur, Chieftain Jajir, 5 rupees. Number 8. Ghulam Qadir Khan Bahadur, Minister State of Nalagar, 5 rupees. Number 9. Malik Yar Khan in charge, Police Station, Batala, 2 rupees as a donation. Number 10. Azimullah Khan, JCO, Junior Commissioned Officer, Troop 5, 1st Regiment, Mominabad, Kant, Hyderabad. 5 rupees towards the purchase of the book. Number 11. Molvi Abdul Hamid, Magistrate, Jalalabad, District, Ferozpur. 2 rupees and 8 anas as a gift. Number 12. Mia Jan Muhammad Qadian. 1 rupees as a donation. Number 13. Mia Ghulam Qadir Qadian. 10 rupees. 5 towards the purchase of the book. 5 as a donation. Number 14. Nawab Ahmad Ali Khan Bhopal. 5 rupees towards the purchase of the book. 
Number 15. Molvi Ghulam Ali, Deputy Superintendent, Tehsil Muzaffargar. Five rupees as a gift. Number 16. Mia Karim Baksh, Assistant Manager, Tehsil Muzaffargar. Five rupees as a gift. Number 17. Kazi Mahfouz Hussain, Manager, Tehsil Muzaffargar. Five rupees as a gift. 18. Mian Jalaluddin, record keeper, Muzaffargar. 5 rupees as a gift. Number 19. Sheikh Abdul Karim, judicial clerk, Muzaffargar. 5 rupees as a gift. Number 20. Mia Akbar of Balawal, district Gurdaspur. 2 anas as a donation. Publisher Translation. In the name of Allah, the gracious, the merciful. Holy are you, how vigorous is your argument. All greatness belongs to you, all might belongs to you. The whole world is weak, all power belongs to you. You are the one, independent and besought of all, who is unique in the essence of your being and unique in your grace and munificence. Your wisdom is great, your argument has become evident, your bounty has been perfected, your mercy encompasses all. You are far above every defect and shortcoming. Your station is beyond all disgrace and dishonor. You alone are unique and peerless in respect to the exaltedness of your being and perfection of your attributes. You are free from every trace of weakness and shortcoming. We praise you for your favor upon us in sending down a book in which there is no doubt, no error, no omission. You have revealed with it, for us error-prone ones, the way of truth, knowledge and wisdom. You have guided us by your grace, generosity and beneficence. Without your guidance, O gracious Lord, we would be lost. We beseech you to send down your blessings on your messenger, the unlettered prophet, through whom you saved us from the path of misguidance and transgression and delivered us from the darkness of sightlessness and deprivation. He it is who caused the true faith to prevail over every other faith. His followers are cleansed of every kind of shirk, polytheism, innovation and transgression. His sharia excels in every verity, wisdom and proof. He is the devoted servant whom you created for your love and for establishing your oneness. You made the remembrance of your holiness and your glory dear to him than his own self. You sent him as the mercy for all the worlds, a living argument against the disbelievers, a shining lamp for seekers after truth, a beckoner towards Allah for those who are in search of truth, a bearer of glad tidings for believers and a perfect man for everyone to behold. He brought the book that encompasses all laws based on wisdom and guides towards the realization of all spiritual blessings. He perfected the intellectual and practical faculties of many, adorning them with morals that please God and cleanse them of the impurities of human nature. Thus, through his teachings, they excelled in all branches of true and certain knowledge and were enraptured in their love for God, the One, and became eager to behold his holy countenance and his holy manifestations. O Allah, send your blessings upon him and all his brethren, the messengers and prophets, and upon the blessed and virtuous progeny, and upon his righteous and truthful companions. End of publisher translation. The spectacular panorama of the universe constantly proclaims that there is one who laid its foundation and built it up. He has no associate and no partner. 
there is none to interfere in his work or to share his secrets. He is the maker of this universe, but he himself transcends it and is independent of it. He is one and has no partner, the living, the almighty, the eternal, the everlasting, the unique, the all-seeing. The maker of the universe, the holy, the eternal, the creator, the provider, the gracious, the merciful. The mentor, the teacher who leads to the path of faith, the guide, the revealer of the true knowledge. The possessor of all lofty attributes in their perfection, far above the need for a spouse and children. He is ever immutable and beyond the reach of death and decline. Nothing is out of the reach of his command. He is not derived from anything, nor he is like anything. We cannot say that he is close to us, nor can we say that he is far from us. Though his being is far above everything, we cannot say that anything is below him. He transcends everything that can be conceived through reason, intellect or imagination. His being is above all kinds of doubts. He is matchless and unique, free from all bounds and limitations. None is equal to him, either in his person or in his attributes. Everything has been created by his power. The diversity of his creation bears witness to his oneness. If he had any partner in his creation, the entire creation would be in chaos. The peerless one is free from all that is made of dust and is dust. He has set constraints on all things, but is himself free from all bounds. Man is a slave bound in fetters, trapped by countless desires and greed. So are the sun and the moon constrained to move in their own orbits. The moon has no power to act freely and to shine during the day. Nor has the sun any power to step onto the throne of the night. Water is a slave too to have a cooling effect. It cannot do otherwise on its own. The blazing fire is also his slave. He is the one who caused it to burn with such intensity. O wise man, no matter how you beg or beseech the fire, you cannot abate its heat. The tree trunks are firmly rooted in the soil, their feet firmly secured by shackles. All these phenomena point to the one and serve as proofs and signs of his existence. O Lord of all creation and all the worlds, the whole universe is wonderstruck at your power. How marvellous is your might and majesty! How strange are your works and your creation! From the first, all praise belongs to you. In this you have no associate and no equal. You are the one, matchless and eternal, far above the need for an associate or partner. 
You alone are the Lord of both the worlds. None is like you in the one or the other. Your might rules everything. Before you, nothing has any worth. Fear of you makes one secure against every fear. The more one knows you, the more one lives in awe of you. People seek protection and shelter from others, but you alone grant protection to one and all. Your remembrance is the key to resolving all difficulties. Without you, everything that occurs in the mind is anguish for the heart. Whosoever cries unto you with humility finds again his lost fortune. Your grace never abandons your true seekers. No one ever suffers loss in your path. Whoever submits himself before you turns himself away from all others. Why indeed should he turn to others when he has left his affairs in your mighty hands? Just as we have only one heart and one soul, so is your holy being enough for us as the one and only friend. Whosoever establishes a relationship with you unknown to others, your mercy is bestowed upon him openly for all to see. Whoever sticks to your threshold with devotion and sincerity, his household is filled with light. Whosoever adheres to your path achieves all his objectives and a plentitude of hope shines upon all his affairs. Whosoever seeks your path finds it, and resplendent becomes the face that does not turn away from you. But he who runs away from your shelter finds only disgrace no matter where he turns. O oh my God, forgive my sins and show me the path to your presence. Vouchsafe light to my heart and soul and cleanse me of my hidden sins. Be my beloved, win my heart and soul and with a single look do away with all my tribulations. You alone are dear to me in both the worlds. All I desire from you is you. Worthy of infinite praise and adoration is the mighty Lord who demonstrated his great power by creating all souls and bodies through his command and decree without any pre-existing matter or substance and who manifested the sign of his eternal grace by imparting knowledge to and perfecting the morals of all the noble prophets without the agency of a teacher or mentor. Holy is Allah, the gracious and beneficent, who gave us poor mortals without any merit of our own all that we needed. For our physical sustenance he appointed the sun, the moon, the clouds and the winds, and to satisfy our spiritual needs he sent down the Torah, the Gospels, the Quran and all other heavenly books at their appropriate times. Countless thanks be to you, O Allah, for guiding us to the path that leads to you and for saving us from errors of thought and reason by sending down your holy books. 
we invoke blessings on the chief of prophets, Hazrat Muhammad Mustafa sallallahu alayhi wasallam, the chosen one, on his progeny and on his companions. Through him, God guided an entire world that had lost its way to the right path. He was the teacher and the benefactor who led misguided people back to the right path, the benevolent and compassionate one who delivered people from shirk, polytheism, and the curse of idols, the light and the disseminator of light who illumined the world with the light of Tawheed, oneness of God, the healer and physician who enabled ailing hearts to tread the path of righteousness, the noble miracle worker who revived the dead with the elixir of life, the merciful and compassionate one who suffered pain and sorrow for his ummah, the valiant and the brave one who rescued us from the jaws of death, the humble and selfless one who bowed his head before his Lord in total submission and completely annihilated his self, the perfect believer in the oneness of God and the ocean of knowledge who was overawed by nothing except the majesty of God and saw everything beside him as worthless, and the miracle of divine power who, despite being unlettered, surpassed all in respect of divine knowledge and brought home to all nations the errors and mistakes from which they suffered. My heart is surging with the desire to praise the Master who has no peer in excellence, whose entire being is devoted to God, the Eternal Friend, whose soul has attained union with the Beloved, who has been drawn towards the Divine with His bounties and grace, who has been raised in His lap like a child, who in piety and beneficence is a boundless ocean, who, in kindness and compassion, is a matchless pearl, who, in his generosity and munificence, is like the spring rain, who, in his favours and bounties, is a sun, who is merciful and a sign of God's mercy, who is generous and a manifestation of divine munificence, whose countenance is so delightful that a glimpse of it turns an ugly face into one of beauty, whose luminous heart has caused hundreds of souls that had been plunged into darkness to shine like stars. It was a blessed hour when his blessed self came as a mercy from the sustainer of the universe. He is Ahmad of the latter days, whose light makes the hearts shine brighter than the sun. He is the most beautiful of the progeny of Adam and more lustrous than the purest of pearls. From his lips flowed a fountain of wisdom and in his heart is an ever-flowing spring full of divine knowledge. There is none like him on land or sea who disassociated himself from all for the sake of God. God has given him a lamp that is forever safe from tempests. He is the champion of the mighty Lord God, wearing the dagger at his side in all his glory. His arrows showed their speed in every battle. His sword proved its worth in every field. He proved to the world the helplessness of the idols. He revealed the might of the all-powerful one. 
so that no one who adores, worships or carves idols may remain unaware of the Almighty's power. Truthfulness, restitude and uprightness he adores, falsehood, corruption and all kind of mischief he abhors. He is the master, yet a servant of the weak and humble. He is the king, yet he attends upon the helpless. The compassion that mankind received from him, none has ever received even from a mother. Intoxicated by the wine of the beloved's love, he laid down his head at his doorstep. His radiance reached every people, his light shone upon every nation. He is a sign of the gracious God for all who have the insight, and for every man of understanding a divine testimony. With kindness he aids the weak and helpless, with compassion he shares the grief of the forlorn. The beauty of his countenance surpasses the sun and the moon. The dust of his abode is more fragrant than musk and ambergris. How indeed can the sun and the moon be like him, whose heart shines with divine light like hundreds of suns? A single look at his unmatched beauty is better than a life of eternity. Being cognizant of his charm, I readily give him my life, while others only offer him their hearts. The thought of his countenance sends me into transports of ecstasy. A drink from his goblet keeps me forever intoxicated. If only I had wings and pinions, I would keep flying towards his court. Of what use are tulips and sweet basil to me, for I am in love with that countenance and that being. His beauty pulls at the strings of my heart and attracts me like a powerful magnet. I have seen that he is the light of the eyes and his love is as warming as the rays of the sun. Resplendent is the face that does not turn away from him, successful is he who holds on to his door. Whoever sets sail on the ocean of faith without him is destined to miss his port at the very outset. He is unlettered, yet peerless in knowledge and wisdom. Can there be any greater and more truthful testimony? God granted him the elixir of such knowledge that every star paled before its dazzling light. The true potential of man that had long remained hidden was finally manifested through him. Every excellence found its culmination in his holy person. No wonder the reign of all prophets ended with him. He is the son of every land and of every age, a guide for all, dark or fair. He is a perfect personification of knowledge and cognition, and also combining in his person the attributes of the cloud and the sun. My eyes searched all around but found not a fountain purer than that of his faith. For seekers there is no leader besides him, for those who are in search of truth there is no God but he. He is the exalted station 
where the intensity of its light would scorch even the wings of Gabriel. Permanent and unalterable is the law and the faith that God has granted him. It first shone on the land of Arabia and put an end to all its evils and idolatry to bring about the spiritual reform of its inhabitants. Then the light of faith and the holy law covered the world like the limitless expanse of the sky. He granted people from the Lord God the purpose of their lives and rescued them from the jaws of the dragon. On one side, great kings were wonderstruck by him. On the other, scholars and sages were left dumbfounded. No one could reach the depths of his knowledge and power. He shattered the pride of all the arrogant. He does not need any man's praise. Indeed, praising him is itself an honour. He resides in the gardens of holiness and majesty, far above the comprehension of those who eulogize him. O Lord, convey to him our humble salutations and to all prophets his brethren. Every prophet was the light of truthfulness. Every prophet was a luminous sun. Every prophet was like a divine shelter for the faith. Every prophet was a fruit-bearing orchard. Without the holy community of these prophets, all objectives of faith would have remained unfulfilled. Whoever is not grateful for their coming rejects the bounties of the Almighty. There are a hundred pearls from the same shell, equal in their person, essence and brilliance. Never have there been a people to whom a warner did not come at the proper time. Adam was the first and Ahmad the last. Blessed is he who recognizes the latter. All prophets are luminous gems, but Ahmad is the brightest of all. Every prophet was a treasure house of knowledge, every one of them a guide towards the Lord. Whoever has any knowledge of Tawheed, oneness of God, owes this knowledge to one prophet or another. He has surely learnt it from their teachings, even if he arrogantly refuses to admit it. Those who have turned their backs on these holy ones are a lost and unholy people. Even though their eyes have not seen the face of the truth, they write volumes upon volumes arguing about it. How unfortunate they are, taking pride in their eyes and turning their backs on the sun. If eyes did not need the sun, the bat would surely be the most sharp-eyed creature. He who is blind and there are pitfalls in his way, woe on him if he does not take a guide. There are another people who, due to their ignorance, are similarly beset by untenable beliefs. They believe that in the whole world God has not created a land better than theirs. Moreover, they believe that no face pleases him other than their beautiful face. That God has always been and shall always remain confined to their land. 
that he is not in the least bothered if other people perish due to ignorance, that he gave his book to a small nation and left countless others without guidance, that when he distributed good and evil among his creation, to them alone did he grant truth and falsehood to all others. They say that among other nations there have only come hundreds of liars and pretenders, that not one prophet came to convey God's message to them, or to show them the path to God, or to reveal the falsehood of every liar, so that God's argument would be complete against every Muslim and Christian. In short, they consider the glorious God to be the most unjust of the unjust. For he leaves whole nations steeped in misguidance at the mercy of every scheming impostor. They believe that like a lover of this world, he loves only one religion and cares not for any other. Not only do they hold such absurd beliefs, they are also naive enough to be proud of them. The result of such evil doctrine and evil thinking is that they have become strangely blind and dumb. They have closed their eyes to a hundred fresh springs and have fallen for a trough of dirty water. They have gone to the extremes in their animosity towards the prophets. God save all from the enmity of such arrogant people. One would not expect from the devil himself the enmity that these people harbour for the holy ones. The donkey has no match in foolishness, but they far exceed the donkey in folly. They do not care for inquiry or evidence, nor do they seek the truth with sincerity. They do not recognise a remedy from its effect, nor a tree from its fruit. They neither ask others about the truth with humility, nor use their own judgment to find it. They care not to investigate which faith is better than the rest. They are partial to one faith and opposed to all others, unmindful of the difference between few and many. They do not fear the omnipotent God, nor dread the day of judgment. These black-hearted people have sealed their eyes and are burning in their fury like a python. They have intentionally turned their backs on the truth and fallen in love with this treacherous world. In their ignorance they have declared their own house to be the pulpits for their senseless sermons. Strange indeed is their God who has deliberately neglected every other country who has chosen a single tongue and a small land to send down his revelation. How can such beliefs be considered right? How can reason lead to such conclusions? How can one who is himself good and keeps good company harbour such malice against the righteous? For the moon there can be no greater abuse than that it should be called good for nothing. If a blind man were to say there is no sun, he would only be asking for more ridicule.
so doubt not the blazing sun if you do not wish to be derided. If you seek God, do not transgress. Do you not fear the wrath of the subduer? Why do you not dread the day of judgment? Why do you not fear God who is just? How could you ever believe in their lies? Or has God given you a book wherein it is all written? The light of the prophets has enveloped the entire world, and yet you who are blind deny it with such vehemence. If you call a brilliant ruby worthless, the lustrous stone will not be any the less precious for it. Reviling the virtuous affects them not in the least. It only reveals your own wickedness. Harboring malice against men of God is an act of cowardice. A gentleman is he who has no mischief in him. He who burns in the fire of malice and hatred is a helpless prey to his baser self. The eyes of a blind or one-eyed person are much better than the eyes of the malicious. Woe be on malice and prejudice, curse be on the malicious and the malevolent. One cannot reach God the Great except by sticking to the path of truth. We are humble servants of all the prophets, like dust we lie at their threshold. May our lives be sacrificed for every prophet who showed us the way to the true God. O my Lord, by virtue of the host of prophets whom you sent with your abundant grace, grant me wisdom as you have granted me a yearning heart. Grant me wine as you have granted me the goblet. O my Lord God, for the sake of Mustafa, the Chosen One, whom you supported at every step, hold my hand with your grace and compassion and be my friend and helper in all my affairs. I put all my trust in your power, even though I am like dust or humbler still. I would now like to make it clear to all seekers after truth that this book, entitled Al-Brahinul Ahmadiyya, Allah Hakikate, Kitabillah Al-Quran, One Nabuwatil Muhammadiyya, has been written so that everyone is made cognizant of the arguments for the truth of Islam and the divine origin of the Holy Qur'an and of the grounds for the truthfulness and prophethood of Hazrat Khatamul Anbiya, the seal of the prophets, may peace and blessings of Allah be upon him. This book is also intended to confound and silence on the basis of rational arguments all those who deny the unassailable faith of Islam, the holy book, the Holy Qur'an, and the exalted prophet, so that in future no one may have the temerity to attack Islam. This book consists of a challenge, a preface, the main text in four chapters, and an epilogue. May God make it a source of blessings for seekers after truth and guide its readers to his true religion. Amin. The Challenge 
I hereby offer a reward of 10,000 rupees to all those who can prove that their scriptures are equal to the Holy Qur'an in respect of all the arguments and incontrovertible proofs which I have adduced from the Holy Book, or, in case their scriptures fail to provide such arguments, make an admission of this failure in their books and try at least to refute all my arguments one by one. I, the author of Brahine Ahmadiyya, publish this announcement on my own behalf, offering a reward of 10,000 rupees. Publisher footnote, 10,000 rupees was the total value of the property of the author in 1879. End of publisher footnote. It is addressed as a challenge and as the completion of proof against all the elders of various religions and creeds who do not believe in the truth of the Holy Qur'an and the prophethood of Hazrat Muhammad Mustafa, the Chosen One, may peace and blessings of Allah be upon him. I hereby make a legal and binding declaration and a pledge warranted by the Sharia, inviting anyone from among the disbelievers to prove on the basis of arguments derived from his own revealed book that it is equal in status to the Holy Qur'an in respect of all the arguments that we have produced from our Holy Book in support of its own truth and the truth of the prophethood of Hazrat Khatim al-Anbiya, the seal of the prophets, may peace and blessings of Allah be upon him. Or, if he cannot advance arguments equal in number to our arguments, he can produce from his own scripture at least half of them, or one-third of them, or one-fourth of them, or one-fifth of them. Or, if he is totally incapable of doing any of this, he can at least refute my arguments one by one. In either case, I, the publisher of this announcement, shall, without resorting to any kind of excuse, give to the one who duly responds to this challenge the possession and the right to make use of my property worth 10,000 rupees, provided that three judges, acceptable to both parties, unanimously give the verdict that the conditions laid down for the contest have been duly met. Let it be clear, however, that if he is unable to advance rational arguments from his own scripture, or if he, in accordance with the conditions laid down in the announcement, fails to put forward even one-fifth of the arguments, he will have to make a written submission in clear and unequivocal terms that the inadequacy and irrationality of his scripture has rendered him incapable of fulfilling this clause. If, however, he does advance the required number of arguments, he should keep in mind that the permission to advance up to one-fifth of the arguments does not mean that he can advance one-half or one-third or one-fourth or one-fifth of the total number of arguments. This condition rather applies to each category of arguments. He will have to advance one-half or one-third or one-fourth or one-fifth of the arguments from each category. Some people might not understand what I mean by the category of arguments, so let me explain that the arguments given by the Holy Qur'an as proof of its own divine origin and the truth of the prophethood of Muhammad may peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, are of two types. First, there are arguments that are based on the internal evidence of the truth of the Holy Scripture, the Qur'an, and of the Holy Prophet, i.e., arguments based on the inherent excellences of this sacred book and those based on the holy character, 
excellent morals and perfect qualities of the Holy Prophet himself. Secondly, there are arguments that are based on the external and incontrovertible evidence of the truth of the Noble Qur'an and of the Holy Prophet, i.e. arguments based on objective facts and established recurrent events. Each type of the above-mentioned arguments is further divided into two categories, the simple argument and the composite argument. The simple argument is the argument that is in itself sufficient for establishing the divine origin of the Noble Qur'an and the truthfulness of the Holy Prophet and does not need anything else to support it. The composite argument is the argument whose validity requires a set of mutually dependent arguments which when considered as a whole, i.e. when all its components are taken into account collectively, is found to be so perfect that it necessarily establishes the truth of the Holy Qur'an and of the Holy Prophet. But when each component is considered individually, it may lack the required degree of cogency. And the reason for this discrepancy is that the value of the whole always differs from the sum of its components. For instance, ten people can collectively lift a weight, but if the same number tries to lift it one by one, they will find it impossible. All the individual arguments which belong to either of these two types of arguments will be referred to as categories of arguments in this book. And it is in this context that in the beginning of this announcement, I outlined the condition that anyone who intends to take up the challenge should from each category of arguments advance from his own scripture half of the arguments of the Holy Quran or one third of them or one fourth of them or one fifth of them. This is in case he is unable to produce all the arguments that fall under one category. Furthermore, it should also be clear that if anyone wishes to cite an example of the composite argument, which I have just defined, from his own scripture, then if the constituent parts of an argument form an argument in their own right, it will be binding on him to produce at least one instance of all these sub-arguments from his own scripture. As an illustration of the above condition, I cite one of the many authentic composite arguments in support of the truth of the Holy Qur'an. It is as follows. The fundamental teachings of the Holy Qur'an are based on rational arguments. That is to say, the Holy Qur'an proves with logical arguments every fundamental principle of faith on which salvation depends and establishes its truth by strong and powerful philosophical arguments. For instance, it proves the existence of the Creator, establishes His unity, advances irrefutable arguments to show why divine revelation is necessary, and never fails to prove a truth or refute a falsehood. And this constitutes a very powerful argument to prove that the Holy Qur'an is from Allah and also to categorically establish its truth and its supremacy. For it is impossible without divine help and divine revelation to purge all cropped beliefs of every form and type of error through manifest and clear arguments and to eradicate by means of irrefutable arguments all sorts of misgivings and doubts which have crept into people's hearts and to record in one's book a collection of such proven, true and established principles as have not been mentioned in any other scripture nor truly discovered by any sage or philosopher on the basis of his reflection, meditation, reason, speculation, thought or understanding. What is more, 
No one has ever brought forward the slightest evidence that the Holy Prophet, may peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, ever, even for a day, attended any school or learnt rational or traditional sciences, or ever associated with philosophers or logicians, as a result of which he was able to advance philosophical arguments for each and every established principle and demonstrate the truthfulness of all the beliefs on which man's salvation depends with such clarity that nothing like it is to be found in the annals of history. This is such a magnificent achievement as could not be accomplished by anyone without divine support and revelation. Thus reason is compelled to rule that the noble Quran is from God, who has no associate and whose knowledge cannot be equaled by anyone. I have given this argument as a specimen of the composite arguments whose components are arguments in their own right. Hence all the components of this argument are such that each of them is based on axiomatic truths. Since this argument, too, belongs to one of the categories of arguments, therefore, just as the disputant is bound to produce all the other categories of arguments, so must he also produce arguments of this category. In doing so, however, it is necessary to produce all the sub-arguments on which this argument is based and whose totality constitutes it, such as the argument for establishing the existence of the crater the argument for establishing his unity, the argument for establishing his creative power, etc., all of which are components of this argument. Note by Hazrat Mullana Jalaluddin Shams Razila Anho The Urdu words is the leel that are translated here as this argument were written by the promised Messiah, may peace be on him, in his own handwriting in his copy of the book. The existence of a whole is not possible without the existence of its component parts, nor is the realization of any value possible without considering the value of its constituents. Thus, it is also, note by Hazrat Mulana Jalaluddin Shamsazilanho, the Urdu word be, that is translated here as also, was written by the promised Messiah, may peace be on him, in his own handwriting. Thus, it is also mandatory on the disputant to advance all these sub-arguments, though he has the option that where we have, for instance, given five sub-arguments to prove a principle, he may, to prove or disprove a claim, as his view may be, give only one sub-argument by deducing it from his scripture in conformity with the conditions and limits I have laid down in this announcement. Announced by the Humble One Mirza Ghulam Ahmad, Qadian, District Kurdaspur, Punjab Facsimile of the back page of the first edition for part 1, printed in 1880. The Brahine Ahmadiyya, entitled Al-Brahinul Ahmadiyya, Allah Hakikat Kitabullah Ul-Quran, Wal-Nabuwatul Muhammadiyya discourses on the divine origin of the Holy Qur'an and the apostleship of Muhammad, the Prophet of Islam, by Mirza Ghulam Ahmad Saab, Chief of Qadian, Gurdaspur District, Punjab. Amritsar, printed at the Safira Hind Press, Amir Ali Dola Printer, 1880. This book, which is compiled after a most careful and elaborate investigation for the benefit and conviction of 
of those dissenters who deny the veracity of Islamism is published with an offer of 10,000 rupees for its refutation, subject to the conditions contained in the preface. The author. Part 2 Translation of the original Urdu title page for Part 2 Truth has come and falsehood has vanished away. Falsehood does indeed vanish away fast. With the infinite grace of Allah, the guide of the whole world and the entire universe, and by the perfect mercy of Him, guide to those who are lost, this irrefutable book, named Brahine Ahmadiyya, namely, Arguments in Support of the Holy Qur'an and the Prophethood of the Holy Prophet Muhammad wasallam, published by the pride of the Muslims, Mirza Ghulam Ahmad, Chief of Qadian, Gurdaspur District, Punjab with thorough research and investigation as a conclusive argument for those who deny the truth of Islam along with a prize of 10,000 rupees. Amritsar, Punjab, printed at the Safira in the Press, 1880 CE. Subhanallah, holy is Allah, what a wonderful book it is. It makes one familiar with the true faith in a short time. Considering that it points to the path of salvation, how wonderful it is that the year of the publication, 1297 Hijri, is represented by the phrase Ya Ghafoor, O Forgiving Lord. Sa'urikum ayati fala tasta'jilun. Surah Al Anbiya, Part 17. Publisher footnote I will certainly show you my signs, but ask me not to hasten. Surah Al Anbiya, Chapter 21. Verse 38. End of publisher footnote. Hasty response of the detractors of Brahine Ahmadiyya. Footnote. Note by Hazrat Mulana Jalaluddin Shams Razilanho. This announcement is included in the first and third editions, but not in the second. End of footnote. Many Christian missionaries and Hindu gentlemen have claimed somewhat rashly, that they will write rebuttals to this book. The derogatory language they have used in their announcements, which have been published in the newspapers Safira Hind and Noor Afshan and the magazine Vidya Parakashak, is more in keeping with the style and manner of the uncivilized and serves only to betray the depravity and corruption of their own nature. They seem to labor under the illusion that their threats and indecent remarks will cause me fright. They are unaware that I know them too well, and the mendacity and sordidness of their thinking is no secret to me. Hence I do not fear them and they cannot intimidate me at all. The lowly moth, when its death is near, attacks the burning flame with great pride and temerity. I only ask them to show restraint until some parts of the book are published. Thereafter they need not hold back and are at full liberty to criticize as much as they please. There is a common proverb, the truth has nothing to fear, and in this instance truth is surely on my side. No Christian missionary or Hindu pundit can succeed against me, nor can they harm me with their nonsensical and vacuous boasts. Rather, their arrogant posturing only exposes their dishonesty and ill intent. Hitherto they have not even perused the contents of this book and are ignorant of its arguments, 
nor do they comprehend the standard of research on which it is based. And yet they are audacious enough to claim that they will counter the proofs and arguments contained therein, so much for their honesty and integrity. Gentlemen, how can you claim to be able to reject my arguments when you have not even studied them? It is blind prejudice, surely, that drives you to denounce my arguments as invalid and easily refutable, for you have neither ascertained whether the arguments and proofs I have advanced are authentic or spurious, nor whether they are based on solid premises or upon mere fallacies. If you have already decided to reject my arguments without inquiring into their merit, what is there to guarantee that your nafse amara, ego, will not tempt you into deceit, hypocrisy, knavery and dishonesty, so that you can boast that you have successfully responded to the challenge. Had your intentions been just and sincere, you would have vowed that if my arguments turned out to be true, you would cheerfully accept them, otherwise you would write a rebuttal to reveal the truth. You would thus have been considered fair in the eyes of the just, and held as men of conscience. Alas, how can those who readily seek to commit injustices against God be considered equitable and fair. Some of them deny that the Lord is the creator. Some of them consider the one God to be three. Some of them believe that God once dwelled in Nazareth, while others place him in Ayoda. In short, I invite you all in the name of God to come and take up my challenge without any reservation or delay. Argue like Plato, become the incarnation of Bacon, borrow from Aristotelian reasoning, and dialectic, clasp your hands before your false gods and beseech them for help. Then you will witness whether it is my God who prevails or your false deities. And until such a time that you write a response to my book, it will be shameful and indecent of you to continue to attack Islam in public or to preach in Hindu temples that the Vedas alone are the work of the Almighty and the true source of knowledge and that all other prophets are impostors and liars. Yaro khudi se baaz bhi aoge ya nahi Khu apni paak saaf banaoge ya nahi Friends, will you not free yourselves from the clutches of your egos? Will you not purify yourselves? Baatil se mel dil ki hataoge ya nahi Haq ki taraf rajubi laoge ya nahi Will you not cleanse yourselves of the filth of falsehood? Will you not accept the truth? Kab tak rahoge zid o taasub mein doobte Aakhir kadam basidik athoge ya nahi How long will you remain immersed in obduracy and prejudice? Will you not tread the path of truth? Kyun kar karoge rad jo mohakkak hai ek baat? Kuch hosh karke uzr sunaoge ya nahi. How can you deny that which is established to be true? How can you continue your apologetics without rhyme or reason? Such such kaho agar na bana tum se kuch jawab. Phir bhi ye mu jahan ko takhaoge ya nahi. Tell me truly, if you fail to respond adequately, how will you show your face in public? An important announcement. The price of Brahina Ahmadiyya has been discounted to 10 rupees for Muslims for they never hesitate to extend financial help for the cause of their faith, 
provided, of course, they are possessed of sufficient means. However, people of other faiths will be charged full price specified in the announcement contained in Part 1 because no financial service or support is expected from them. Announced by the author, Brahin Ahmadiyya. An important and unavoidable appeal. Natural human weaknesses compel us to live as part of society and to seek and foster mutual cooperation. This fact is so self-evident that no reasonable person will contradict it. The constitution of our physical bodies is a sufficient proof of the need for collaboration. Our hands, feet, ears, nose, eyes, etc. And all our internal and external faculties have been fashioned to work in concert with one another. Without their mutual cooperation, normal human activity would be impossible and the human body would become dysfunctional. An action that requires both hands cannot be performed by one, and a path that has to be travelled on both feet cannot be traversed on one. In much the same way, all our successes, whether pertaining to this world or the hereafter, are dependent upon the help and cooperation of others. Can any individual accomplish anything, mundane or spiritual, entirely on his own? Certainly not. People who share common objectives realise them only by joining hands. This is all the more true with regard to great endeavours that aim to serve and benefit humanity at large. They cannot be accomplished single-handedly without cooperation. Even the prophets, may peace and blessings of Allah be upon them, who excelled all mankind in their trust in God, commitment to his cause, fulfilment of his obligations, and striving for righteousness, were compelled by this natural law to announce, Man ansari illallah. Footnote, Who are my helpers in the cause of Allah? Surah As-Saf, chapter 61, verse 15 of the Holy Quran. End of publisher. Footnote. God, too, testifies to this inherent human need in his revealed law by commanding us ta'awanu alal birre wa taqwa. Publisher footnote, help one another in righteousness and piety. Surah Al-Maida, chapter 5, verse 3 of the Holy Quran. End of publisher footnote. Sadly, most Muslims have forgotten this blessed command and have completely disregarded the very principle on which the success and future of their faith depends. Whereas people of other faiths whose scriptures do not even stress such cooperation have adopted it in their eagerness to propagate their faith. Consequently, their teachings are spreading fast. Look at the zeal the Christians are showing these days for spreading their faith and the strenuous effort they are making. They have access to tens of millions of rupees for publishing new literature. An average affluent person in Europe and America contributes more towards the propagation of the Gospels than do all of the wealthiest among the Muslims. There is a large Muslim population in India, and some of them are quite wealthy and well-placed, but when it comes to spending in a good cause, most of them, with the exception of a few chiefs, ministers and officials, are found to be indifferent, apathetic and tight-fisted. They only indulge in their own passions and desires, and their minds stink of apathy and indifference, they have scant regard for Islam and its needs, but when their own honour and prestige are at stake, they do not hesitate to part with their entire wealth. Those who show courage and resolve for their faith, such as His Excellency Hazrat Khalifa Sayyid Muhammad Hassan Khan Bahadur, 
the Prime Minister of Batiala, are so few and far between that they hardly need to be counted on one's fingers. Of course, some among them do spend in the cause of religion, but it is more as a ritual than a genuine desire to fulfill a real need. For instance, if one person builds a mosque, another will do the same, merely out of rivalry. They will spend thousands without stopping to think if their money has served any real purpose. They do not realize that the most urgent need of this day is to spread religious teachings and that if people lose their faith, there will be no one left to fill these mosques. They imagine that they can fortify their faith by building high and formidable minarets and embellishing them with beautiful marble while they pay scant attention to the spiritual strength, loftiness and beauty of Islam that is presented by the Holy Qur'an and illustrated in the verse Asluha thabitun wa far'uha Publisher footnote Like a good tree whose root is firm and whose branches reach into heaven. Surah Ibrahim, chapter 14, verse 25 of the Holy Qur'an End of publisher footnote. Having become slaves of form and ritual like the Jews, they have no interest in inviting the world to the comfort and shade of the blessed tree of Islam. They fail to fulfill their religious obligations when the occasion arises. Indeed, they do not know how to fulfill them, nor do they care to learn. It is true that huge sums are spent every year by our people in the name of goodness and charity, but sadly, few realize what true charity is. They spend blindly without any care or appreciation of the circumstances. Having thus emptied their pockets and exhausted their emotions, they fail to move a muscle when a real need presents itself and try to make up for their former extravagances by resorting to miserliness and disregarding their obligations. These are the people whose generosity and benevolence does not spring from the true depths of their hearts, but from their egos. Some people, for instance, build mosques in their old age, seeing it as an easy way to attain the bliss of the hereafter and a ready-made house in paradise. But when it comes to real acts of piety, they would not be at all perturbed if the ark of the faith were to sink right before their eyes or Islam were to be destroyed in an instant. The faith may perish for all they care. All their pain, all their concern, all their devotion and all their daily dealings pertain to the material world but even in this aspect they have not been able to progress as much as other nations everyone who honestly tries to reform the ummah only ends up lamenting their apathy and callousness the cry of ya hasratan alal qawm alas for our people is heard all around i cannot speak for others so i will recount my own ordeal it is in view of the widespread corruption and chaos prevalent in this age that I have written Brahine Ahmadiyya, wherein I have made the truth of Islam more evident than the shining sun with the help of 300 incontrovertible rational arguments. Since this book amounts to a clear victory over the opponents of Islam and satisfies the heartfelt desire of the Muslims, I naturally assumed that the affluent among them would appreciate its worth and lend their wholehearted support in overcoming the difficulties in its publication. Such has been my disappointment, however, that I am lost for words to describe it. Allahul Musta'ano Wallahu Khairun Wa Abqa Allah alone can be depended upon for help and Allah is the best and most abiding. Some people, far from helping me, have caused me a great deal of trouble and anxiety. 
I sent 150 copies of part 1 to some affluent Muslims, hoping that they would readily buy it and send advance payment for the whole book, which is not a great amount. Thus, this religious objective would be easily accomplished and countless people would benefit from it. Therefore, I wrote almost 150 letters apprising them of the situation, but with the exception of two or three generous souls, no one bothered to reply or return the books. The money spent on post is certainly lost, but if the books are not returned, it will seriously imperil the whole endeavour. It is a pity that, instead of help and cooperation, I have received injury at the hands of my brethren. If this is how they intend to defend Islam, then all efforts to serve the faith are doomed. I most humbly request these gentlemen that if they do not wish to make advance payments for the books, they should at least post them back to me. I will consider this a great favour and kindness on their part, otherwise the first part will have to be reprinted at considerable expense. These are not copies of some newspaper whose loss would make no difference. Each part of the book is indispensable, without which the whole remains incomplete. Dear brothers, I urge you in the name of God to do away with apathy and heedlessness and stay away from such indifference in matters of faith. Try to appreciate my difficulty. If I do not have all parts of the book, what am I supposed to give to the buyers and how am I to ask them for the advance payment that is so crucial to the publication of the remaining parts? The entire project shall become stalled and a religious objective that we all share will run into unnecessary difficulties. Man expects good from others. I expect no good from you. The least I can ask is... Do not do evil unto me. I have also been distressed by the remarks of some unintelligent people who are in no position to make valid observations in matters of faith because of their ignorance and indifference. When it was announced that the cost of the publication would be around 9,000 rupees, they started creating hurdles with hypocritical remarks instead of readily offering their support in view of the low price of the book and high cost of publication. They have been questioning the need for this book in the presence of such a vast corpus of religious literature. I do not care about such objections, for I know that the worldly-minded have their own interests at heart and always try to evade their religious obligations lest they have to part with a few pennies. But since, by denigrating this serious efforts, they are trying to deprive people of its immense benefits and are sparing no opportunity to sting as is their want... And since I do not want anybody to be misled by their senseless talk, I would like to reiterate what I have said in part 1, that Brahina Ahmadiyya has not been written without a true and urgent need. Had another book been able to fulfill the same objectives, I would have readily endorsed it and devoted myself to its propagation. In that case, it would have been pointless for me to sweat blood for so many years and to have wasted a cherished part of my life on something that had already been accomplished. But to my knowledge, there is no book that comprises all the arguments and proofs that I have collected and whose publication is so crucial in this age for establishing the divine origin of Islam. I saw no choice but to publish it to meet this exigency. Let those who doubt produce a book like it, otherwise continuing with senseless talk and barring the creatures of Allah from a source of grace is a great sin. 
Bear in mind that the observation made above is no attempt at self-praise. If I have undertaken some research that the eminent scholars of the past did not, and if I have advanced arguments that they did not, it is only because every age has its own requirements. This neither elevates my humble position nor takes anything away from their lofty status. Living in times when corrupt ideas had not spread to such an extent, they mostly had to deal with misguided beliefs which people had inherited from their forefathers. No doubt, the approach they adopted proved sufficient to correct the ills of their times. We, on the other hand, live in an age in which corrupt beliefs are spreading so forcefully that past methods have proven seriously inadequate. This age calls for thorough investigation and research to cure its ills, and as with every age, it requires its own new literature. The reason, as stated above, is that there are times when the disorders abate, and at other times they intensify. Sometimes they arise in one way, and at other times in a different way. When an author seeks to redress them, he has to identify like a skilled physician the nature and extent of the illness and suggest the best possible remedy. This remedy should be administered in the most suitable way, bearing in mind the nature and severity of the illness. If a book fails to adequately address the problems of its contemporary readers, it is useless and ineffectual. It does not have the power to penetrate the hearts of the skeptics and root out their doubts. With even a little reflection, our critics will realize that the forms of corruption that have presently engulfed the world have no parallel in history. Whereas people in the past mostly fell prey to blind following, the danger we face today is the misuse of reason. Whereas people of the earlier ages were corrupted by senselessly following irrational ideas, they are now being led astray by false reasoning and logic. This is why pious and eminent scholars of the past did not have to employ the kind of arguments and reasoning that we have to employ today. The new light of our age, woe if this be light, is vitiating the spirituality of the newly educated. Instead of glorifying God, they glorify themselves. Instead of following his guidance, they take themselves to be the guides. Today's youth are generally inclined towards finding rational explanations and causes for all things, but on account of insufficient knowledge and wisdom, they end up being led astray rather than being guided. Perversion of thought and perception has greatly impaired their power to draw rightful conclusions. The profusion of divergent thoughts and ideas has thrown people of lesser understanding into great confusion. Sophistic rhetoric has further confounded the minds of the youth. Things that were self-evident and perfectly rational have become dubious in their eyes and what is totally absurd is hailed as an absolute truth. Actions that are inconsistent with human dignity are termed as the epitome of civilization, while true civilized behavior is downplayed and ridiculed. It was in this backdrop that I wrote Brahin Ahmadiyya, which contains 300 incontrovertible rational arguments for the divine origin of the Holy Quran, the word of God to which these people have so arrogantly turned their backs. It is perfectly clear that he who is enchanted by reason can only be satisfied by reason, and he who is misled by reason can only be guided back by reason. Every believer ought to realize how this book, which comprises 300 rational arguments, will benefit mankind and dispel the doubts of all skeptics and reveal the light of Islam in all its glory and splendor. Only those who do not reflect upon the plight of the age or ignore its ills and their consequences or have no interest in faith or bear no love for God and his messenger will ignore such an important project. 
Friends, in these turbulent times, Islam can only stand its ground if it repels the besieging forces of misguidance with an equal force and defends itself against the enemy onslaught with the mighty power of truth. The pitch darkness that has engulfed the world will only be dispelled when a vast number of proofs in support of Islam enlighten the world and the rays of its truth spread in all directions. In these times, which are riven with difficulties, spiritual unity can only be brought about by a closely reasoned book which not only reveals the profound secrets of the ultimate reality, but also helps man reach the true source of the reality upon whose knowledge depends the contentment of hearts. Dear elders, it is extremely naive to think that we can defend our religion in this age without employing the most effective rational proofs and arguments. Look around and see how opinionated people have become and how adversely the progress of rational sciences has affected their thinking. Educated people have developed a strange kind of liberalism. Their conceited hearts are devoid of the bliss that springs from simplicity, humility and purity. Most of what they learn draws them away from religion and many on account of their compounded ignorance try to assume the role of philosophers even before they have learnt to undertake proper research. Have mercy on your children, your community and your countrymen and pull them towards the truth and restitute before they are irretrievably drawn into falsehood. You will thus be doing great service to your children and the world too will find out that in comparison with Islam the other religions are devoid of substance. The divine law of nature teaches us that effort and striving is most often the means to success and that those who are neglectful and indolent remain, for the most part, deprived and unfortunate. If you strive to spread the truthfulness of Islam, which is truth, God shall never allow your efforts to go in vain. He has blessed us with hundreds of incontrovertible proofs for the truth of Islam, whereas our opponents are empty-handed, and he has established us on the truth, while others rest on falsehood. They cannot even remotely imagine the kind of genuine enthusiasm that a righteous person has for demonstrating the glory of the one God. And yet, relentless effort is something so effective that the followers of falsehood can also sometimes reap benefits from it. Their efforts, like those of a persistent thief, can bear fruit once in a while. Take the Christians, for instance, whose principles appear absurd even at a cursory glance, and yet the consistent efforts of their missionaries have resulted in the growing popularity of their faith, so much so that each year they proudly publish reports of four to 8,000 people joining their ranks. The latest estimates of Christian conversions given by Father Hacker of Calcutta are worrying to say the least. He writes that whereas there were only 27,000 Christians in India 50 years ago, the number has now risen to 500,000. Inna lillahi wa inna ilayhi raji'oon. To Allah we belong and to him shall we return. Publish a footnote, a phrase from the Holy Quran which is recited by Muslims to express their deepest pain. End of publish a footnote. Elders of Islam, do you await a time of an even greater spread of misguidance? There was a time when Islam was the living illustration of the Quranic verse Yadkhuluna fi deenillahi afwaja Publish a footnote Men entering the religion of Allah in troops Surah An-Nasr chapter 110 verse 3 End of publisher footnote And look at what is happening today Do your hearts not bleed at this calamity and are you not overwhelmed by anguish O men of knowledge and wisdom 
it is not so hard to understand that the corruption that has resulted from religious ignorance can only be eliminated through the spread of religious knowledge. It is with this objective in mind that I have written Ibrahim Ahmadiyya, wherein I have demonstrated the truth of Islam so unequivocally that it will bring final victory to Islam in all the long-standing disputes. Also remember that the appeals that I have made for assistance in its publication are solely for the benefit of all Muslims. It is obvious that a book whose publication cost runs into thousands and whose price has been fixed at less than half of its actual cost from 25 to 10 rupees so as to make it easily accessible to the Muslims cannot be published without the help and cooperation of generous Muslims. I pity those who, in response to my appeals, say that they will buy the book only after all its parts have been published. They should bear in mind that this is not some kind of business enterprise. I have no interest in their money except in so far as it helps the cause of Islam. Now is the time to help when it is needed. Offering help afterwards will be like administering medicine to one who has already recovered. It would not merit any reward. One is left to wonder how the love of the faith has disappeared from people's hearts. They spend thousands for their own honor and prestige without giving it a second thought, but start making all kinds of excuses to avoid serving the matters pertaining to faith the ultimate objective of this transitory existence. They profess to believe in God and the hereafter, but the truth is that in reality they neither believe in God nor in the hereafter. If they were to consider for a moment as to how much, out of their God-given wealth, they have spent for the gratification of their own egos in a year and compare it with what they have spent for the sake of God towards the welfare of mankind in the entire course of their lives, the realization of their own duplicity will put them to shame. But who will bother to reflect in this way, and who can remove the veils that cover the hearts? Publisher footnote And he whom Allah lets go astray shall have no guide. Surah Arad, chapter 13, verse 34 of the Holy Quran. End of publisher footnote it was in view of such parsimonious and worldly-minded people that some of my revered friends, who, you can rest assured, are ardent lovers of the faith, being human, have suggested that it was perhaps not a good idea to write a voluminous book that would require so much money to publish. I humbly submit to them that if I had omitted to record hundreds of truths and verities that have caused the book to gain such volume, its very purpose would have been defeated. As far as the question of raising the funds is concerned, my friends need not alarm me. Let them know that I have greater trust in my omnipotent and magnanimous Lord than a close-fisted miser has in his coffers, whose keys are tucked away in his pocket. God, who has power over all things, will defend his faith and his oneness, he will come to the aid of his servant. Alam ta'lam annullaha ala kulli shay'in kadir. Publisher footnote. Dost thou not know that Allah has the power to do all that he wills? Surah al-Baqarah, chapter 2, verse 107 of the Holy Quran. End of publisher footnote. Publisher footnote. I am under the constant protection of the Almighty, Frighten me not with the parsimony of the weak. End of publisher footnote. Printed at Safira Hind, Amritsar. Preface And some important matters which are produced below. Firstly, with utmost respect and humility, 
I would like to reassure everyone who adheres to a faith or creed different from mine that my purpose in writing this book is not to injure anyone's feelings or to provoke unnecessary controversy. My sole concern and heartfelt desire is to demonstrate the truth and restitute and lay it bare for all to see. I would have been quite happy to confine myself to my own faith and avoid discussing the beliefs of my opponents, but the problem is that a thorough scrutiny and comprehensive discussion of true principles and arguments is not possible without exposing the falsity of all creeds opposed to the right path. I therefore had no choice but to mention them and to remove the doubts created by them. Evidently, truth cannot be established without answering the objections of the opposing party. For instance, if the existence of the Creator were under debate, it could not be concluded without systematically eliminating all the false beliefs held by the atheists. Similarly, when we argue that God is the Creator of souls and bodies, it is necessary to rebut the misconceptions of the Arya Samaj, who deny the creative powers of God. Author Footnote Arya Samaj is a new Hindu sect whose leader and founder is a pundit by the name of Dayanand. The reason why I call it a new sect is that all the principles it adheres to and all the doctrines it imputes to the Vedas are generally not found in any ancient Hindu sect or in the Ved Bash and other reference works. It is rather an amalgamation of miscellaneous ideas some the product of the pundit's own imagination and others taken haphazardly from various religious texts. Such are the tactics that characterize this sect. Their first and foremost belief is that Parmeshwar, God, is not the creator of matter and souls. Rather, that all of these things are eternal and self-subsisting, like Parmeshwar himself, and are their own gods, so to speak. Parmeshwar, they believe, is someone who has come into power through luck or gallantry and rules over things that are much like himself and without which he would be nothing. They consider the souls, spirits and the building blocks of matter to be so completely independent of Parmeshwar that it would make no difference to them even if he were believed to be dead. We seek refuge with Allah from such senseless doctrines. The author. End of footnote. Moreover, we shall also have to remove the doubts entertained by the Brahmu Samaj when we set down arguments of the need for divine revelation. Besides, it has also been confirmed by experience that unless the present-day opponents of Islam are made to realize the irrational and fallacious nature of their dogmas, they tend to pay no heed to the truth of Islam, no matter how brilliantly its truth shines upon them. Under these circumstances, it is not only permissible but the demand of honesty, fairness and sympathy that we discuss other faiths in a comprehensive manner and mince no words in an endeavour to dispel their doubts and expose the falsity of their creeds. Since we honestly see them as having deviated from the right path and consider their principles to be contrary to the truth and believe that their departure from this transitory world with such beliefs will earn them a great punishment, we cannot shy away from our duty to reform them, nor can we turn a blind eye to their erroneous beliefs and their efforts to mislead others. Otherwise, how would we claim to belong to the true faith and how shall we acquit ourselves before our Lord? Worldly people who have no regard for God and the true faith 
are likely to take my comments ill and make wild accusations to express their displeasure upon hearing the excellences of Islam and the shortcomings of their own faith. But I do hope that there will be many seekers after truth who will find the right path through this book and will bow down in gratitude to God who will teach and reveal to them what he has taught and revealed to me. It is for them that I have written this book and taken upon myself this heavy responsibility. It is beyond the power of my tongue or my pen to express the goodwill and concern I have for them. The pain that I have in my heart for the seekers after truth cannot be described in my brief statements. My heart and soul are so deeply engrossed in their concern that I care not for my heart nor am I aware of my life. I am nevertheless happy that I pine for God's creatures. The cries that I utter in pain are a source of delight for me. My purpose, yearning and heartfelt desire is to serve humanity. This is my job. This is my faith. This is my habit and this is my way of life. I do not venture into this path of admonition and good counsel on my own will. Goodwill for humanity keeps pulling me forward. What is the worth of empty words in the spirit of human sympathy? Were I to offer a hundred lives in ransom, I would feel inadequate and apologetic. Finding the world in darkness, I pray to my Lord, may he grant my prayers of the small hours of the night. I appeal to all truthful and righteous people to consider my humble self their true well-wisher and sympathizer and to give this book the same close attention as they would to the counsel of a friend to which they listen attentively and as far as possible accept without suspicion, putting aside their own reservations and even feeling grateful to the friend who advised them with sincerity and uprightness and informed them of what was beneficial to him. This is what I expect from the elders and learned scholars of all faiths. If they find the arguments I have given in favour of the divine origin of Islam and the evidence I have put forward to establish the Holy Quran as the word of God and its superiority over other divine scriptures to be conclusive and irrefutable, they will accept them in the spirit of justice and righteousness and not turn away out of prejudice and heedlessness. Author footnote the opponents of Islam might object that admitting the superiority of the Holy Quran over all divine scriptures would perforce mean that other scriptures are inferior. But how can they be inferior when they are the word of the same God? How can there be any question of superiority and inferiority between them? The answer is that as far as their divine origin is concerned, all the scriptures are equal. However, some are superior to others in terms of the degree and perfection to which they elaborate the principles of faith. Thus it is that the Holy Quran enjoys superiority over all other scriptures. No book contains religious truths such as those regarding the oneness of God, prohibition of all forms of idolatry, cures for spiritual maladies, arguments against false doctrines, and proofs in support of true beliefs to such perfection as does the Holy Quran. Detailed arguments in support of this claim shall be given in chapter 1. Doubts and misgivings as to why God did not equally invest all his books with truths and verities and why the Holy Quran was given superiority in this regard will only arise in the minds of those who are ignorant of the true nature of revelation, 
of its causes and of the manner in which it is vouchsafed. Let it be clear that God never sends revelation unless there are reasons calling for it. He only sends down his revelations when there is a genuine need for them and this has been his eternal practice. It also goes without saying that sending revelations regardless of whether they are needed or not is something that we would not expect from the all-wise one who does everything in keeping with the requirements of wisdom, appropriateness and timeliness. It should be understood therefore that if the Quran contains the truths and principles of faith that other scriptures do not, it is because the need for these teachings arose only at the time of the Holy Quran and they could not have been revealed earlier. Detailed evidence for this shall also be given in chapter 1. Author End of footnote I am humble and speak with utmost courtesy. Allah knows that I bear no grudge against anyone. I have not ventured upon this task as a futile exercise. The spectacle of the beauty of my beloved pulls me towards him. Dear people, all wisdom and sagacity lies in recognizing in this very life the beliefs and principles on which depends the bliss or damnation of the hereafter and thereby establishing oneself on truth and shunning falsehood. Man should base his delicate beliefs, which he considers to be the basis of his salvation and eternal well-being, on absolute and decisive proofs rather than being proud and enamoured by the tales one was told by his mother or nanny in childhood to cling on to myths and conjectures for which there is no credible argument, amounts to self-deception. Every rational person knows and understands that all divine books and the principles contained in them, which different nations regard as the means to their salvation and to winning divine approval, and on the basis of which they consign to damnation those who differ from them, ought not to only possess the testimony of the divine word, but must also be verifiable through reason and logic. While it is true that divine revelation is the most trustworthy source of knowledge, absolute certainty being dependent on it, it is equally true that if a scripture makes a claim that is clearly in conflict with reason and logic, such a claim will have to be considered false, and such a scripture will have to be regarded as fabricated or interpolated on account of its irrational teachings. If the truth or falsity of something, or its logical possibility or impossibility, rests on the verdict of reason, then the principles on which salvation is said to depend must also be validated by the same authority. If it is not possible to prove the various doctrines espoused by various faiths through rational arguments, and instead they are proven wrong, incredible or impossible, how are we to know whose doctrines are true and whose are false, or that an ancient scripture of the Hindus is invalid and the books of the children of Israel are authentic? Moreover, if there is no rational way to distinguish between truth and falsehood, how would a seeker after truth tell them apart so as to embrace truth and shun falsehood? Moreover, how would anyone be held accountable before God for not believing in such doctrines? Author footnote Irrational doctrines whose falsity is manifestly established by reason can never be accepted as true, for otherwise conclusive rational arguments would lose their credibility, and when the very beliefs that were regarded as the basis for salvation turn out to be wrong, those who place their faith in them will surely be denied salvation and earn everlasting torment and eternal chastisement. 
This is because the beliefs they called their own proved to be false, and the true beliefs that were sanctioned by reason had already been repudiated by them. This becomes evident in this very life. One who adheres to illogical and false beliefs, and refuses to accept those who have been shown to be true, has to face a lot of embarrassment, particularly when confronted by men of knowledge. He is even reproached by his own conscience for holding such absurd and illogical beliefs. This is a kind of spiritual punishment he suffers even in this world. Author. End of footnote. And if, for our salvation, we definitely stand in need of beliefs that are supported by rational arguments, the question naturally arises as to how and through which sure, perfect and easy means can we arrive at such beliefs and discover arguments that will lead us to absolute certainty. In answer, I would like to submit that the certain, perfect and easy means of finding the true principles of salvation and their supporting arguments with absolute certainty which involves no toil or labor, nor admits of error, doubt, misgiving or uncertainty, is the Holy Quran. There is no other book and no other means through which we can achieve this great objective. Author footnote. The statement that the Holy Quran is the surest, easiest and most perfect means of recognizing the true beliefs will be established with conclusive evidence in due course, and the principles held by the followers of other books will also be shown to be false and misconceived. But I would like to address the Brahamu Samajists here, who do not believe in any revealed book and consider their own reason sufficient for ascertaining the truth. They may ask why reason should not be held as the only sure and straightforward means for arriving at the truth. Although I will deal with this misconception at greater length under the discussion of divine revelation, I find it necessary to dispel this misconception from the very start. It is true that God has endowed man with the faculty of reason, which, like a lamp, shows him the right path and dispels his doubts and misconceptions. It is an extremely useful and essential faculty and a great blessing. Nonetheless, it has one major flaw. It cannot, on its own, take us to the level of absolute certainty with respect to the true nature of things, for absolute certainty consists in knowing things as they actually are. The best that reason can do is to postulate the need for something to exist, but it cannot go further and confirm that it does indeed exist. Perfect certainty, whereby we rise from the level of should be to that of is, is only achieved when reason finds an ally that is capable of confirming its speculative reasoning and bringing it into the realm of perceptible facts, and where reason says it should be, this ally is able to confirm it is. As I have already pointed out, reason can only establish the need or requirement for something, and not its actual existence, which are two separate things. Anyhow, reason requires an ally to make up for its imperfect and hypothetical claim of should be with the confirmatory is by revealing things as they actually are, Hence the ever-merciful and noble God, who desires to lead man to the level of absolute certainty, has fulfilled this need by providing human reason with many allies. He has opened the path to certainty, so that man may not be deprived of his most cherished goal, of bliss and salvation, which is only possible through perfect conviction, and so that he may quickly cross the perilous bridge of should-be, 
which his reason has built on the dangerous river of doubt and conjecture, and reached the impregnable castle of Is, where he finds peace and security. Reason can have different allies from occasion to occasion, but there are no more than three as far as the limitations of reason allow. To illustrate, if the testimony of reason relates to perceptible objects that can be seen, heard, smelled or touched, the ally that helps it to reach the stage of certainty is called observation or experience. If the testimony of reason relates to events that happen or have happened in various ages and places, it finds another ally in the form of historical books, writings, letters and other records, which, like observation, bring clarity to the hazy light of reason, such that only a fool or madman will doubt them. If the testimony of reason relates to metaphysical phenomena, which we cannot see with our eyes, hear with our ears, touch with our hands, or substantiate through historical records, then a third ally comes to the aid of reason. This is known as divine revelation. The law of nature demands that just as reason found allies in the first two instances, it should also find an ally in the third instance, for there is no contradiction in the laws of nature. If God did not desire reason to remain unassisted in knowledge of the sciences and arts, errors and lapses in respect of which are not of much consequence, it would be wrong to assume that he has forsaken man in matters of divine knowledge, which is essential for attaining eternal salvation and ignorance of which could lead one to hell. It is unfair to think that God has limited the knowledge of the hereafter to notions based on mere conjecture and has not provided any means to verify it so as to bring certainty to the heart and to confirm that the means for salvation suggested by reason are indeed true and not merely hypothetical. Having established that in theological matters absolute certainty is only to be attained through revelation and that man requires perfect certainty for salvation and the preservation of his faith it becomes obvious that he stands in dire need of divine revelation here it should also be borne in mind that all divine revelations were meant to bestow certainty on man but the certainty for which the holy quran has laid the foundations surpasses all past revelations to elaborate all divine revelations prior to the Holy Quran, being mostly in the form of narratives, only served as testimony to certain events. This is why they became corrupted in the end, and selfish and egotistical people interpreted them to suit their own purposes. The Holy Quran, however, took upon itself to substantiate its teachings with rational proofs, and thus saved man from countless hazards. Firstly, it acted as a true messenger, imparting knowledge of the divine realm. Secondly, it substantiated its teachings with the aid of reason. Anyone who studies the Holy Quran will find that, from beginning to end, it provides two kinds of statements, the testimony of reason and the testimony of revelation. In the Holy Quran, these two are like two great streams running in parallel and influencing each other continuously. The stream of reason shows that something should be, and the stream of divine testimony assures us, like a wise and righteous informant, that it is. The advantage of this Quranic approach is obvious, for in reading the Holy Quran, a seeker finds rational evidence for its teachings, evidence the like of which cannot be found in any work of philosophy. This claim shall also be established in chapter 1 of this book. What is more, he who reads the Qur'an reaches the highest level of certainty 
through the testimony of divine revelation and finds in an instant all that others could not find in a lifetime of effort and deliberation. And so we can conclude that the Holy Quran alone is the surest, easiest and most perfect means for recognizing the true principles and beliefs upon which our salvation depends. The Author End of footnote Gentlemen, I have learned with complete certainty and any one of you who ponders what I have pondered upon will also fully realize that all the teachings in which a seeker after bliss must have complete faith and on which our salvation and eternal happiness of humankind depends are to be found in the Holy Quran alone. All other scriptures have become so corrupted, they are so full of such concocted and artificial creeds and have deviated so far from the right path of wisdom and from the ways of nature that I feel embarrassed at even having to quote them, nor is this contention of mine without compelling evidence. I say, in all truth, that I undertook thorough research before writing this book. I read the scriptures of all faiths with a spirit of fairness and honesty, and pondered and deliberated upon them. I compared their teachings to those of the Holy Quran. I held discussions with the eminent scholars of various faiths, and I strived as hard as is humanly possible to discover the truth by exploring all available avenues. Finally, I arrived at the conclusion that, of all the scriptures in the world today, the Holy Quran is the only one whose divine origin can be established with irrefutable arguments. It is the only one whose principles regarding salvation are based on truth and human nature, whose doctrines are comprehensive and firmly grounded in truth and are confirmed by powerful arguments whose commandments are nothing but the dictates of truth and whose teachings bear no blemish of idolatry, human innovations and false deities. Its teachings zealously promote the oneness, greatness and excellence of God and it is filled to the brim in establishing the oneness of the glorious God. It does not impute to him anything that is contrary to his oneness or attribute to him any blemish, shortcoming or unworthy attribute. It does not impose any teaching upon us without first providing adequate proof in support thereof and explains each of its principles with proofs and clear arguments and leads its followers to perfect certainty and understanding. It removes through clear and unequivocal arguments all the corruptions, impurities, defects and distortions that have found their way into people's beliefs, actions, sayings and deeds and teaches all ethical and moral norms the knowledge of which is essential for becoming truly human. It resists every prevalent evil with equal force, and its teachings are straightforward, well-founded, and flawless, as if they were the very reflection of the laws of nature and a true picture of human conscience. Indeed, they are as the sun for the illumination of mind and heart, and make good the deficiency inherent in reason. And when I looked at the current state of the other so-called revealed books, it was clear to me that all of these books are completely devoid of all of these perfect qualities. They attribute all kinds of false notions to the person and attributes of God, and their followers adhere to strange and dubious doctrines, while some deny that he is the creator and the all-powerful and hold themselves as his equals and partners in eternity and self-existence, Others consider idols and small gods and goddesses to be a partner or custodian of his kingdom. While some are carving sons and daughters and even grandsons and granddaughters to him, others believe that he himself was reincarnated as a crocodile or a tortoise. 
Thus, they vie with one another in presenting his perfect being as a most unfortunate being who could not even acquire the perfection and excellence that reason expected of him. Dear brothers, to be brief, when I found people mired in such false beliefs and lost in such darkness, my heart trembled and my whole being was shaken to its foundations and I took it upon myself to write this book for their guidance. It became for me an obligation that I had to fulfill at all costs and so, by the grace of God, this manuscript of the book was completed in an extraordinarily short time. The truth is that this book is a glad tiding for those who seek the truth. It is a final and irrefutable divine argument against those who are opposed to Islam, an argument they will not be able to refute up to the end of days. For this reason I have also included an announcement for a reward of 10,000 rupees to complete the argument against all those who oppose and deny the truth of Islam, so that they may be left with no excuse to stubbornly hold on to their false beliefs and doctrines. O seeker of truth and restitude, read this book with attention and care. Were you to take one caring glance at my book, you will realize that this is the path that leads to paradise. But the condition is justice and honesty, because justice is the key to wisdom. Two things are the guardians of all affairs, material or spiritual, an enlightened heart and a keen and penetrating mind. He who is wise and just will not accept anything except the true and straight path. He denies not the path that is pure and straight and turns not away from the veritable and fair. Once he has witnessed something with truthfulness, he does not insist on a stubborn denial. O you who wish to reach the castle of salvation, only righteousness will carry you there. Be with the truth and let truthfulness abide your heart. Be not attracted to falsehood like the ill-natured. Never become the lover of an ugly one, even if beauty disappears entirely from the world. It is better to leave the land untilled and bare than sowing the seed of thorns and prickly herbs. If your mind were to open to see reason, you would seek the path of God with humility and submission. Then you would seek him with a sincere heart and would not be unmindful of him even in your dreams. Then you would not find a moment's rest until you found him and of his existence became aware. Death awaits you and your existence is no more than a bubble and yet you sleep on carelessly. Look back at your forefathers, how they passed away from this world. You forgot what happened to them, you forgot their end so soon. What stratagem have you to escape death? Have you erected a rampart to protect yourself? Since death, like an alligator, snatches a man with suddenness, then why should he act so arrogantly? O oh, young man, give not your heart to this lowly world. Its fanfare will disappear all of a sudden. No one lives in the world forever. 
Time does not remain constant. We have consigned to the earth many a dear one with our hearts full of grief and sorrow. Having buried so many ourselves, why should we not remember the day of our own death? Why should we forget their memories? We are not made of steel or bronze. O enemy of mine, fear the wrath of God, for the chastisement of my Lord is hard to bear. For not fearing the omnipotent God, countless nations and towns were destroyed. No sign was left of their arrogant dwellers, not to speak of signs, not even a bone survived. Wisdom is that a man should live in fear, or else calamity after calamity would come upon him. To be dead is surely better than to live a life of sin and wickedness. Come and tread the path of justice. Would prejudice stop you from repentance? Believe me, what I say is true and just. It is no empty boast nor a senseless tale. I reflected deeply over every religion and listened carefully to the argument of every one. I studied the scriptures of all religions and heard all their scholars. I devoted myself to this endeavour from my early years and adopted it as my sole occupation. I spent my entire youth in the same endeavour and freed myself from all other cares. I spent a long time in this pain and anguish and I could not sleep for many a long night. I pondered over it in all fairness and in keeping with fear of God, justice and equity. I found no faith other than Islam that is rested on a solid foundation and for this faith I became full of fascination. So clear and pure is this religion that for sure the envier can see his face in it. Its path to purity is so clear, so straight, that reason bears testimony to its truthfulness. It inculcates only wisdom, reason and justice, and saves from all types of ignorance and corruption. There is no other faith like it in the world, May all that is against it fade into oblivion. Its teachings on which rests salvation are as convincing as the shining sun in their truthfulness and firmness. The teachings of others are also obvious. No effort can conceal them. If the non-Muslims had the knowledge, they would have protected the faith of Islam by laying down their lives. Muhammad is the most magnificent imprint of the divine light. None like him can ever be born on the face of the earth. Every land was devoid of truth, like the night pitch dark. God sent him and spread the truth. A new life was breathed into the earth by the advent of that leader. He is a flourishing and productive tree of the garden of purity and perfection and all his progeny are like red roses.
Secondly, may I submit that anyone who wishes to reply to this book must respond in two ways as per the conditions laid down in the challenge in part one. They must produce arguments from their own scriptures for comparison with the arguments of the Holy Quran and must also refute the arguments I have given if they fail to present comparable evidence from their own scriptures and focus entirely on countering my arguments, it will be taken to mean that they are totally incapable of providing evidence for the divine origin of their book. Bear in mind that it is indeed my heartfelt desire that someone who does not agree with my claim that the Holy Quran is the actual word of God, is superior to all of the scriptures and is peerless in giving proof of its own truth, should write in support of this contention, I will indeed be grateful for their endeavours because I have thought a lot about the most effective way of proving to the public that the qualities and excellences that the Holy Quran possesses and the proofs and convincing arguments that establish its divine origin are not at all found in other books. After long deliberation I have concluded that there can be no better way than this, that someone should come forth with evidence similar to what I have offered for the divine origin and superiority of the Holy Quran in support of his own book and publish a treatise on the subject. If it happens, and I pray that it does happen, the truth and dignity of the Holy Quran will become evident even to those of lesser understanding and no simple man will thereafter be lured away by our opponents. And if the author of a rebuttal to my book happens to be someone who does not believe in any divine scripture, for instance, a Brahmu Samajist, it shall suffice for him to refute my arguments one by one and provide rational proofs in support of his own views. If such a one does come forward, his writing will help to open the eyes of many and expose the Brahmu Samajist's unwarranted reliance on reason. In short, I firmly believe that the full impact and true worth of my book will only be known when a follower of some other scripture takes it upon himself to prove the truth of his scripture or, like a contemporary freethinker, gives arguments in support of his self-invented doctrines. Indeed, it is only through comparison that a thing can truly be valued. The beauty and tenderness of a flower, for instance, is all the more alluring when it stands beside the thorns. If there were no ugly and dark face for comparison, how could anyone appreciate the beauty of the beloved? If a battle had not been joined against an enemy, how would the skills of a daring swordsman be known? Light would not be recognized if there was no darkness. Perfect wisdom would go unnoticed in the absence of ignorance. The argument of the truthful becomes clearer after it is countered and criticized. Absurd excuses only prove that the critic is belabouring his point. At this point I would like to request those who wish to write such a refutation that if they intend to do this in the spirit of justice and fairness and if revealing the truth is their sole motive and fulfilling the conditions of my challenge is their intention they should address all my arguments one by one reproducing them verbatim before attempting their reply so that the reader is left in no doubt as to whether the argument in question has been adequately refuted. Summarizing such arguments fails to do justice to the dynamics of their reasoning and many points are lost due to the dishonesty, ignorance or naivety of the opponent. Often the process of selection and abridgment totally undermines the intent of the original writer. 
In such cases, it becomes almost impossible for the reader, who does not have the original text at hand, to fully comprehend the argument and form an opinion. Since this is a high-ranking book and promises a substantial reward to anyone who is able to fully refute its arguments, it is futile and ill-advised to resort to deception and falsehood in trying to counter it. I therefore reiterate and emphasize that only that person will be considered honest and seen to have fulfilled the conditions of the challenge who quotes my arguments word for word in the same order as I have written them. Thirdly, let it also be clear to everyone that all the arguments contained in this book, whether they relate to the divine origin of the Holy Qur'an or the truthfulness of the prophethood of Khatmul Anbiya, the seal of the prophets, may peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, or to the excellences and beauties of the Holy Qur'an and the clear evidence that it is revealed by God, or to any other matter, have been taken from the same book, the Holy Qur'an. This means that both the claim and the arguments in its support have been derived from the holy book. I have not put forward any claim or argument based on my own speculation or reasoning. Hence, I have consistently quoted Quranic verses from which my claims and arguments are derived. Anyone who wants to write in support of his scripture in response to my arguments or wishes to put forward any other claim must follow the same approach. They too should produce both their claims and their arguments from their respective scriptures, and when I say arguments, I mean rational arguments that reasonable people employ in their discourses to prove their point, and not mere myths, fables or legends. Thus, in every context, they should produce only rational arguments contained in their revealed scriptures and eschew conjectures and suppositions that have no basis in their sacred texts. Every reasonable person understands that it is the duty of a divine book to clearly set out its claim of being the word of God as well as to provide clear proof in support of its claim and in support of the principles it lays down. It must not advance empty claims or principles that it cannot uphold and has to depend on others to plead its cause. Author footnote Another reason why a revealed scripture must provide rational arguments in support of its teachings is that the purpose of a scripture is not served if people merely read and repeat it parrot-like, thinking that they have thus merited salvation. Rather, the highest objective of a revealed scripture is to provide rational arguments in support of its teachings so that people may attain absolute and unshakable certainty, the kind of certainty through which all their actions Words and beliefs are set right, and they recognize right as right and wrong as wrong, thereby attaining true piety. People live in great peril as long as they languish in the hell of ignorance and blindly follow teachings inherited from their forefathers, teachings in which they have already lost faith due to apathy and gross materialism. Such are the people described in this verse of the Holy Qur'an. وَمَنْ كَانَ فِي هَذِهِ أَعْمَى فَهُوَ فِي الْآخِرَةِ أَعْمَى وَأَذَلُّ سَبِيلًا i.e. whoever is blind in this world shall be blind in the next world also. Indeed, they shall be worse off. Surah Bani Israel, Part 5 Publisher Note Surah Bani Israel, Chapter 17, Verse 73 of the Holy Quran End of Publisher Note
Any scripture that fails to establish its own divine origin or the divine origin of its principles cannot open for mankind the door to eternal bliss. Instead of leading them on the path of knowledge and wisdom, it stunts their spiritual growth and casts them into the bottomless pit of blind following wherein they dwell like corpses, neither hearing nor seeing nor understanding. The followers of such scriptures have little regard for reason, logic, contemplation or insight and are perfectly content with myths and stories of the past, with no desire to find the truth. Having abandoned the gifts of reflection and deliberation, and having stifled their innate capabilities, they have become worse than non-rational beasts. Bidding farewell to the path of thought and reason, which is the essence of humanity, they descend to a level that can hardly be called human, for they no longer have the ability to distinguish between right and wrong. How aptly does the Holy Qur'an describe such people in the verse, لَهُمْ قُلُوبٌ لَا يَفْقَهُونَ بِهَا وَلَهُمْ أَعْيُنٌ لَا يُبْسِرُونَ بِهَا وَلَهُمْ آزَانٌ لَا يَسْمَعُونَ بِهَا أُولَئِكَ كَالْأَنْعَامِ بَلْ هُمْ i.e. those who blindly follow their forefathers have minds but they do not use them they have eyes but they do not see with them and have ears but do not hear with them. They are like cattle. Indeed, they are worse off. Surah Al-A'raf, Part 9 Publisher Note, Surah Al-A'raf, Chapter 7, Verse 180 of the Holy Qur'an End of Publisher Note In short, the most important task of a revealed book would be to teach man the most appropriate use of the faculties inherent in his nature so that none of the powers that God has wisely invested in him are wasted, or used excessively or insufficiently. One of these, the very crown of humanity, is the power of reason, the correct use of which makes a man truly human, and opens for him the door to excellence and limitless progress. It is obvious that if a revealed book does not uphold and protect man's faculty of reason, but rather discourages its use, such a book, instead of cultivating human faculties, would become an impediment in their balanced use. Instead of helping and supporting human faculties, it would stultify and misdirect them. It would not deserve to be called knowledge or wisdom, for it would only be a collection of myths, irrational beliefs and naive expectations. Anyone who follows such scriptures is like a daydreamer who hopes to reap what he has not sown, Obviously, a book that can only flourish by suppressing reason can bring no good to mankind. Author End of footnote Therefore, it should be fully borne in mind that if anyone, in support of the truth of his scripture, presents an argument that is not contained in the scripture itself, this shall be taken as an admission that the scripture which this person fancies as the word of God fails to meet this condition of the challenge. Fourthly, let the readers also bear in mind that this book has been written in a spirit of great civility, decency and courtesy, and does not contain any derogatory remarks about any holy personage or founder of a faith. I am personally appalled by the use of such words, either directly or by implication, and I believe that anyone who resorts to them is extremely evil and mischievous. I would therefore like to appeal to all good-natured people that, 
should they choose to reply to my challenge, they ought to exercise in the course of their writings such civilized manner as is worthy of any civilized and decent person. They should refrain completely from uncivil and derogatory language and disparaging marks about holy personages, prophets or messengers. To write a religious discourse is a very sensitive matter in which no one person has the final say. Readers who distinguish good from bad and recognize fair-minded from biased and falsehood from truth are watching them closely. There are civilized people in all religions who abhor such mischievous and uncivil speech and consider it extremely sacrilegious and wicked to use derogatory language about the honored founders of different faiths whom God chose in his infinite wisdom and special divine will to be the leaders and guides of their nations. It was through their enlightened souls that the world was blessed with the light of divine worship and divine unity, their forceful teachings uprooted idolatry and creature worship, the mother of all evils, from most parts of the world. It was they who brought new life to the dried-up tree of the remembrance of the one God and erected the fallen edifice of the worship of God upon solid foundations. They were the elects of God whom he took under his own benign protection and supported them so magnificently that even though millions stood up against them, they remained undaunted and resolute in their mission. God saved them from every calamity and from the schemes of every mischief-maker until they had established the truth upon the earth. To revile such elect of God is an act of great impiety, inaptness and insolence. He who spits upon the sun ends up spitting on his own face. Such a one will be cursed till the end of days. The holy ones will remain far and beyond his stink. It is not without reason and special significance that I remind people to be courteous and cautious in the use of their words. I can call to mind many who consider it a great virtue to disparage prophets and messengers. The kind of language they use against them only serves to expose the baseness of their own nature. I have studied the matter in depth and have discovered two reasons for such behavior. It is either because they are incapable of sane and rational discourse or because they are simply confounded by the arguments and objections of a man of truth and find refuge in turning intellectual debate into one of mockery and ridicule. Having failed in other ways, they seek to establish their reputation among their ilk in this manner, and having set themselves up as the leaders and teachers of their people, they try to hold on to this role by exhibiting greater prejudice and obduracy than their followers. To be honest, they are not wholly to be blamed for this, as they are sunk deep in ignorance and prejudice. They neither fear God nor care about faith, truth and restitude, and it is only the rotten world for which they lust. Abuse and slander is all that can be expected from them, insomuch as they are indifferent to God and are without shame or modesty, and are bent upon denying the truth under any circumstances. They can hardly speak or write anything else. Apart from those who are bereft of civility and the spirit of inquiry, author footnote, the average Christian is also not immune from this criticism. In addition to the personal grudge these people harbor against Hazrat Khatamul Anbiya, the seal of the prophets, may peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, they also do not revere any of the prophets apart from Hazrat Masih, Jesus, may peace be upon him, the way they ought to be revered. From the very moment a person is baptized and takes Hazrat Isa, Jesus, to be the special son of God, his tongue is loosened against all prophets. 
Matters have been made even worse by certain gospel statements in which all prophets prior to Hazrat Masih, Jesus, may peace be upon him, are described as thieves and robbers. Such conceited remarks could never be attributed to a righteous person, let alone Jesus, who was so meek, humble and selfless that he did not allow anyone to call him good. How then could such haughty and disparaging words be attributed to him? No doubt, if we call God's noble prophets thieves and robbers, we ourselves would be a thousand times worse. If the hearts upon which holy revelation descended were not holy, how could they be deemed fit to receive the holy revelation? Maligning God's chosen ones is nothing but a cruel attempt at deception. It is pitiful indeed that the very people who are in thrall to their egos and are engrossed in what is wholly mundane should utter derogatory remarks about the elect of God. Brothers, you must believe the prophets to be holy, virtuous and perfect, so that the books that descended upon them may also be regarded as holy. For how could the holy books be revealed to impure hearts? Can the datura, stratmonium, plant, bear grapes? Or can the ark, swallowwort, produce figs? If you find the water of a spring pure and clean, then its source must also be considered pure and clean. Moreover, if those prophets were not God's most loyal and righteous servants, this would expose God to the objection that he is unable to tell a true gem from a false one. In that case, it would have to be admitted, God forbid, that like the evil-disposed people, God is in league with thieves and robbers. Just think whether these holy people who act as bridges between God and man and spread heavenly light in the world ought to be perfect or imperfect, truthful or liars. If the prophets themselves failed in their final objective, which was to establish people on true doctrines and appropriate conduct, who would have listened to them, and how could their words have had any effect? To them even the illiterate would retort, Physician, heal thyself. Besides, what kind of justice, decency or piety is it to speak with such disrespect and indignity of God's messengers as if they were some sort of low menial workers and at the same time not settling for anything less than a stream of praise when speaking of worldly people? Is it fair to stand up in honour of wealthy materialists while refusing to speak even a word of praise for those who are honoured with divine discourse and possess qualities that are pleasing to God? If you really think that they are so unworthy, then why do you even accept them as prophets? Why do you not reject their prophethood altogether? The fact is that all these calumnies against the prophets are rooted in your ignorance of the true value of divine revelation. You imagine it to be a worldly office like that of a judge, collector of revenue or a horseman, which in a dysfunctional government can be acquired through bribery, with no questions asked as to one's character or merit, or like a post that the authorities want filled by someone who can do the work even if he meets just the minimum standard of good character and has only limited abilities. This happens because such jobs are so lowly and insignificant that absolute honesty, good character or good disposition are not a requirement for such jobs. But brothers, you are gravely mistaken. Divine revelation, which is God's own holy word, is only granted on condition of utmost purity and perfect ability of the recipient. A person given to cravings of the flesh and selfish desires is far away from the holy source and hence is not considered worthy of receiving divine revelation. Unless he has been completely purified of all that is unworthy, he cannot acquire the capacity to be graced with revelation. If perfect purity 
was not the precondition, and if the worthy and unworthy were all equal, then every person would become a prophet. But since purity is the essential requirement, it has to be conceded that the prophets are the purest of mankind, such that no higher station of purity can be conceived for a human being. If Hazrat Dawood, David, was not as free from sin as Hazrat Masih, Jesus, he would certainly not deserve to be a prophet. The belief that Jesus is superior to David is at the root of the fallacy that has crept into the hearts of the Christians. It stems from their sheer ignorance of the reality of revelation and prophethood. God willing, this shall be explained at its proper place and with the required evidence. Let us not forget that the Christians I speak of in this footnote not only ridicule other prophets, but also consider Hazrat Masih, Jesus, to be the best of all prophets, in addition to believing him to be God, that is. This is another one of their false beliefs. In actual fact, the greatest among the prophets has to be the one who proves himself to be the greatest reformer of mankind. He has to be the one who has corrected the greatest corruption and mischief of all times, who has re-established the long-lost concept of God's oneness, who has vanquished all false creeds with reason and argument and has removed the doubts and suspicions of those who had gone astray and disbelieved, who has shown the true path of salvation which did not require that an innocent man be crucified or that God be forced from his eternal and everlasting station into a woman's belly and who has revived and re-established the true principles of faith. Since such a one would be of the greatest benefit to mankind, his status would naturally be the highest. History tells us, heavenly scripture testifies to it, and every discerning eye can see that, in the light of this criterion, the one who stands superior to all prophets is none other than Hazrat Muhammad Mustafa, the Chosen One. May peace and blessings of Allah be upon him. In this book, this too shall be made evident like the sun. Author End of footnote Apart from those who are bereft of civility and the spirit of inquiry, thousands among the Christians are emerging who, on account of their pure nature and fair-mindedness, have acknowledged the superiority of Islam. In their writings they have emphatically rejected the doctrine of the Trinity and have conceded that many innovations have crept into Christianity. Unfortunately, such fair-mindedness is disappearing among our fellow citizen Aryas. They are so steeped in prejudice that even to remember a prophet with respect is regarded by them as a sin. They malign all prophets and accuse them of falsehood and imposture, claiming without any evidence that the Vedas, which descended on their forefathers, are the only word of God and that all other revealed books, which have benefited the world immensely by teaching the unity of God and imparting knowledge of the divine, were fabricated by men. Though I have refuted this claim in this book by exposing the falsity and inadequacy of the existing Vedas, I would like to point out here how the beliefs of these people are at odds with the norms of decency, civility and piety, and how prejudice, which seems to run in their very blood, has impaired their capacity for trust and goodwill, in which lies the nobility and dignity of humankind and which adorns humanity with elegance and beauty. Author footnote. To trust and have faith in others unless there is a genuine reason for suspicion is part of human nature. Anyone who is unduly suspicious and distrustful is considered a madman, paranoid, insane or an imbecile. For instance, if a person refuses to eat bread or sweets purchased from the market, fearing that they may be poisoned, or during a journey unduly suspects anyone who guides him to the path 
or is terrified lest the barber should cut his throat with a razor, all these would be considered signs of approaching madness and insanity. Such perverse thoughts are a precursor of insanity. As one gets more and more obsessed by such thoughts, they lead to insanity. Undue suspicion is thus a kind of madness that every reasonable person should do his best to avoid. God has invested man with the faculty of trust in the same way as he has ingrained truth and righteousness in his nature so that one does not want to tell a lie or do evil unless prompted to do so. Had man not been blessed with a trusting nature, he would have been deprived of all the benefits of truthfulness and righteousness upon which rest the entire fabric of society and culture and on which all domestic and national affairs are poised. It is because of this trust, for example, that babies learn to speak and accept their parents as their own. Had they been distrustful, they would imagine that their parents had some ulterior motive in trying to teach them to talk. They would thus learn nothing and remain dumb and even doubtful of their parentage. Author End of footnote Consequently, they have been led to believe that, with the exception of those who appeared in the land of the Aryas, the prophets and messengers who delivered a large section of mankind from the darkness of idolatry and made the light of faith and unity of God shine in most countries of the world, were, God forbid, liars and impostors. They hold that Brahmans alone have inherited true prophethood and messengership, which was the exclusive preserve of their ancestors, that God has granted them absolute monopoly over it, that God has squeezed the vast river of his guidance into their small country, and that he loves only their nation, their language, and their prophets, who, as a matter of fact, number no more than three or four. Author footnote. It is impossible to tell who were the actual recipients of the books that the Hindus today revere as the Vedas, and which they call Rig, Yajur, Sham, and Atharvan, also known as Rich, Yajash, Saman, and Atharvana. It is not clear to whom these were revealed. Some believe that they were revealed to Agni, god of fire, Vayu, lord of the winds, or to the sun, which is plainly absurd. Others claim that the four Vedas issued forth from the four faces of Brahma, and still others are of the opinion that they are the words of different rishis. These claims are so conflicting that it is hard to tell whether these persons ever existed or are merely fictitious characters. In the light of the Vedas themselves, however, the third opinion seems to be true, because even now, different mantras bear the names of different rishis. As for the Atharvan Veda, most learned pundits agree that it is either a fake Veda or a Brahmin Pustak, a book written by a Brahmin, that was added to the Vedas much later. This view seems to be correct, for the Rig Veda, which is the source of all the Vedas and considered most authentic among them, speaks only of the Rig, Yajur and Sham Vedas, and makes no mention of Atharvan Veda. It could not have been left out if it was indeed a Veda. Likewise, the 26th Adhyay of Yajur Veda only speaks of three Vedas, as does the Sama Veda. Manjuji in the 7th Adhyay of the 42nd Shlok of his Bustak also acknowledges only three Vedas. The Yog, Vashisht, which is revered as a holy book in Hinduism and is a collection of the teachings imparted to Raja Ram Chandra by his revered teacher, has given the final verdict regarding the four Vedas. It says that the authenticity of all the Vedas, and not just that of the Atharvan Veda, is in question, 
and that none of them has escaped change and interpolation. Author. End of footnote. This limited view contradicts the fact that sending prophets and revelation is an eternal practice of God, necessitated by the law of nature. If we were to believe in only a small number of the recipients of revelation, the reality of prophethood and revelation would, in such a case, remain a weak, unreliable, and doubtful matter. Moreover, in that case, millions of people who were unaware of this country, or this country remained unaware of their countries, were deemed to be deprived of divine grace, mercy, guidance, and salvation. Worse still, according to the proudly held belief of Adyas, these three or four were not raised as prophets by the special will and wisdom of God. On the contrary, they merited this office by their own good deeds, done in some unknown past existence, and God had no choice but to make them prophets while the rest of the people were forever denied this exalted station. Some were deprived of receiving revelation because their own sins and shortcomings, and some for the crime of belonging to a nation or country other than that of the Aryas. Just consider how this unholy doctrine vilifies the elect of God, who rose like the sun and dispelled the darkness that had spread in the world during their times. Even their Parameshwar, God, has not been spared. He is effectively considered a heedless, neglectful, and confused being who is unaware of the thousands of innovations and millions of tribulations and commotions into which the world was thrown, and the wide variety of mischief which arose after the time of the Vedas, creating great upheaval in his kingdom that needed to be reformed urgently, but he could not be woken from his slumber and slipped away never to return. It means that the amount of revelations that Parmeshwar possessed was limited, and he exhausted it in the Vedas. Having given away the sum total of his possessions, he was left empty-handed and tongue-tied forever. While his other attributes remained intact, the power of speech was lost after the revelation of the Vedas, and Parmeshwar became permanently incapable of communicating with or sending revelations to his creatures. At this stage, someone might think that as the Muslims believe that revelation started with Hazrat Adam and ended with the Holy Prophet, may peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, it proves that the revelation ceased for all times to come after the advent of Hazrat Khatmul Anbiya, the seal of the Prophets. Be it clear that we do not believe, like the Hindus, that God had only so many words to reveal and has now run out of revelations. According to Islam, God's words, his knowledge and his wisdom are boundless, just as his own being is boundless. Allah the Almighty says himself in the Holy Quran, That is, if the oceans were to be made into ink for writing the words of God, surely the ocean would be exhausted, but the words of my Lord would not suffer any decrease, even though other similar oceans were brought as further help. Surah Al-Kahf, Part 16 Publisher Note, Surah Al-Kahf, Chapter 18, Verse 110 of the Holy Quran End of Publisher Note The question remains, in what sense do we consider divine revelation to have ceased after the Holy Prophet, may peace and blessings of Allah be upon him? God's words are limitless, that goes without saying, but the evils that beset the world or the needs that divine revelation fulfills are not limitless. Therefore, 
God only sends down his words to the extent that they are required for the reformation of man and fulfillment of his needs. Now, when we look at the age in which the Holy Qur'an was revealed, we find that mankind stood in need of every kind of guidance because all human affairs, whether related to ethics and morals or doctrine and practice, had deteriorated, and every kind of excess and corruption had become rampant. Therefore, the teachings of the Holy Qur'an were revealed at the highest point of perfection. Consequently, and in this sense, the teachings of the Holy Qur'an are established to be final and perfect. All past scriptures are found wanting because in their time spiritual deterioration had not reached such an extent as to require perfect revelation, whereas at the time of the Holy Quran they had all reached their extreme. This is why the Holy Quran stands apart from all other scriptures which, even if they had not been tampered with, were imperfect at the outset and always left room for the perfect teaching. However, there is no room for any further teaching after the Holy Quran as there is no stage beyond perfection. But if it is supposed for the sake of argument that there might come a time when the teachings of the Quran are replaced by those of idolatry as happened in the case of the Vedas and the Gospels and the concept of God's oneness is changed and interpolated and the millions who strictly abide by the principle of divine unity turn into polytheists and idolaters in such an eventuality a new law and a new prophet would surely be required. Both these assumptions, however, lie outside the realm of possibility. It is impossible for alteration or interpolation to find its way into the Holy Qur'an, as Allah the Almighty has himself promised to safeguard it. <laughs> that is, most surely we have revealed this book, and we alone shall forever remain its guardian. Surah Al-Hijr Part 14 Publisher Note Surah Al-Hijr Chapter 15 Verse 10 Of the Holy Quran End of Publisher Note The last 1300 years bear witness to the truth of this prophecy. No idolatrous teachings have ever been able to infiltrate into the Holy Quran and there is no logical reason to suppose that this will ever happen in the future. Hundreds of thousands of Muslims know the whole of the Quran by heart. Thousands of commentaries have been written upon it. Its verses are read in prayers five times every day. It is recited by its followers daily. Millions of its copies have been spread throughout the world, and its teachings have become known to the people of every nation. All these things compel sane reason to believe that it is impossible for any kind of interpolation or alteration to ever find its way into the Holy Qur'an. As for the assumption that the Muslims should ever revert to polytheism, this too can never happen, because Allah the Almighty has himself declared, That is, polytheism and idolatry has been so uprooted that it shall neither put forth new branches nor return to its previous state. Surah Saba, Part 22 Publisher Note, Surah Saba, Chapter 34, Verse 50 of the Holy Quran End of Publisher Note the truth of this prophecy is self-evident. Despite the passage of a long time, idolatry and polytheism have not been able to replace Tawheed, oneness of God, in any land from which they were uprooted. And sane reason also bears full faith to the truthfulness of this prophecy for future, because if Muslims held fast to the doctrine of divine oneness while they were few and vulnerable, 
nay, they became even more firmly established upon it, how can they abandon it now when they are over 200 million strong? What is more, even the polytheists in this age are drawing somewhat closer to the doctrine of divine oneness because of their exposure to the teachings of the Holy Quran and their continuous association with the adherents of divine unity. Wherever you look, you will find the arguments for divine unity valiantly bombarding the fictitious towers of idolatry and the zeal and fervor of the believers of the heath is sending nervous jitters in the hearts of the idolaters, the enlightened among whom are realizing the hollowness of the edifice of creature worship. Every day the powerful guns of divine oneness are blowing away the unsightly shacks of idolatry. Thus it is no longer possible for the darkness of idolatry to envelop the world as it did in the past when people were prone to confusing the crater with the crated. Since it is not possible for the teachings of the Holy Quran to be corrupted or interpolated and there is no chance that the entire world will ever revert to the darkness of idolatry, it follows that the coming of a new divine law or new scripture after the Holy Quran is also not logically possible because that which is conditional upon the Impossible is equally impossible. This argument also serves as proof that the Holy Prophet Muhammad is indeed Khatamur Rasul, the final and the last law-bearing prophet. Author End of footnote Such are the beliefs of the Aryas towards which they invite all Hindus, but, strangely enough, no such doctrine can be found in the Vedas. There is no commandment in Vedas that teaches such discriminatory ill-will. In all likelihood, such verses date back to the same period in which the wise men of the Aryas wrote in the literary books and reference works that there was no land beyond their own part of Asia and the Himalayas. Hundreds of similarly absurd and superstitious tales, the very mention of which is a waste of time here and which are being discredited every day and have become abandoned by the wise and the knowledgeable, can be traced back to the same period. The height of injustice is that it is the very protagonists of such teachings whose Vedas tell nothing of God himself beyond the tales of fire, air, sun and moon which are created things who have the temerity to call Hazrat Musa, Moses and Hazrat Isa, Jesus and Hazrat Khatam al-Anbiya, the seal of the prophets, impostors, label their blessed ages as times of falsehood and deception, term the extraordinary success which bespeaks divine succor as chance phenomenon, and accuse their scriptures which were bestowed upon them by God at the most appropriate time to bring about a great reformation of having been plagiarized from the Vedas. Peculiarly, the nature of this alleged plagiarism has not been identified. Do the Holy Quran, the Gospels or the Torah contain teachings about fire worship as do the Vedas? Do they praise Vayu or Jal or extol the sky, the moon and the sun? Do they teach how one should supplicate to Indra for many cows and unlimited wealth after expressing its veneration and praise? If these scriptures do not contain any such teachings that form the crux of the Vedas, then what is it that has been copied from the Vedas? At this point, I must say that I am extremely disappointed with the harsh language that Pandit Dayanand has used in some of his treatises and in his preface to the Ved Bash with reference to the Torah, the Gospels and the Holy Quran, and the manner in which he compares the Vedas to pure gold and other scriptures to cheap imitations. Publisher note, Pandit Dayanand has written a commentary on the Vedas which is called Ved Bash. 
He has written an introduction to Vedbash, which is published as a separate book and is called Bhumika of Vedbash. End of publisher note. The sole reason for the pundit's bizarre statements and his absurd attempts at appearing clever is that he has no knowledge of Arabic, Persian or any language other than Sanskrit. He cannot even understand Urdu. Another reason for his behaviour, which is evident from a study of his latest books, is that in addition to his ignorance, prejudice and lack of understanding, he is, like the insane and the phobic, inherently incapable of forming a balanced view and sticking to a correct opinion. This seems to have become his second nature, so that, almost involuntarily, he will label as evil and false that which is good and true. He will label pure as impure and the impure as pure, and will take the crooked as straight and the straight as crooked. This is why he tends to impute baseless interpretations to the Vedas and has them published only to be ridiculed by the people. Though all of India's pundits vociferously declare that no trace of Tawheed, oneness of God, is to be found in the Vedas, that it was never adhered to by their forefathers, and that creature worship was never prohibited by the Vedas, still the Pandit persists in his fantastic interpretation that the multiple Vedic gods are a single deity, so that the Vedas may be taken as divinely revealed. The undue liberties he took and continues to take with the Vedas is his own affair, but his efforts to unjustly disrespect and malign the Holy Qur'an will certainly cause him great ignominy. Indeed, the time has already come with the writing of this book. I am not sure whether, upon being informed by some learned person of the hundreds of arguments establishing the divine origin and superiority of the Holy Qur'an, and of the abundant proofs regarding the falsity of the Vedic teachings which will be written in this book, he will still want to live or will contemplate suicide. It is a pity that in denigrating the sublime, most perfect, comprehensive, graceful and beautiful book, the Holy Qur'an, he fears neither humiliation in the hereafter nor is concerned about ignominy in this world. It seems that he does not care for both the worlds. Even if he had no fear of God, he should have at least feared ignominy in the world, and if he had bid farewell to moral scruples, he should have at least tried to save his face in public. But if his nature is such that he drives malicious pleasure from insulting God's messengers and is incapable of setting himself straight, he can still do no harm to those holy ones. Throughout history, enemies of the prophets have tried their best to extinguish their heavenly light but have failed. Since they were like trees rooted in truth and righteousness, those holy men grew from strength to strength with help from the unseen. The hostile machinations of the enemies could do no harm to them. Like the delicate and beautiful plants that please the gardener, they grew and flourished until they became large, shady and fruitful trees in which spiritual birds seeking spiritual and heavenly comfort nested, and their enemies were totally defeated. Although the ill-wishers tried everything in their power and employed every trick and machination and deceit, they ended up frustrated like a caged bird. When physical hostility could do no harm to these holy men, what harm can vituperation do to them? The prophets were the exalted people whose high standing has been well established in their own times. Their honour could not be stopped either by the opposition of the idolaters or by the barriers laid in their way by nature worshippers. Sharpness of the swords could never dull their grandeur, nor could the piercing arrows do it any harm. Their grandeur was so dazzling that its jealousy drained the blood of many a heart 
an arrow that was launched to pierce many a liver to death, the divine millstone that crushed whomsoever it landed on, and whoever fell upon it was himself shattered to bits. Khuda ke paak logon ko khuda se nusrat aati hai, jab aati hai, to phir alam ko ek alam dakhati hai. To the holy men of God, succor comes from God himself. And when it comes, it shows mankind a world new and miraculous. Wo banti hai, hoa aur har khase ko aur aati hai. Wo ho jati hai, aag aur har mukhalif ko jalati hai. At times it becomes wind blowing away every obstacle in their path. At times it becomes fire reducing their opponents to ashes. Kabhi wo khak ho kar dushmano ke sar par parti hai. Kabhi ho kar wo pani un pe ek tufan lati hai. At times it becomes dust and falls upon the enemy. At times it becomes water and brings a deluge upon them. Gharaz rukte nahi hargiz khuda ke kaam bando se. Bala khalik ke aage. God's designs, in short, cannot be frustrated by mortals. How, indeed, can the created avail anything against the creator? My purpose, in short, is to admonish the pundit and other enemies and opponents that if they do not wish to believe in the true books revealed by God on account of their worldliness, racial prejudice, false pride or lack of modesty, so be it but they must desist from using abusive language as it leads to an evil end. Even if one were to suppose for the sake of argument that the truth of the divine prophets is not apparent to them, they will certainly admit, if only out of some fear of God and of public ridicule, that what has not been proven to be true is not necessarily false. To say that the truth of Tom's claim is yet to be established can never be the same as saying that it has been established that Tom is false in his claim. The fact is that declaring someone to be a liar without establishing his falsehood and continuously calling him a liar is the work of those who take material gains, false pride and status in the community to be their everything, their faith, their religion and their Parmeshwar and Bhagawan, God. If they were to accept the truth and give up all sorts of stubbornness, they would have to leave everything behind and enter the faith of God in all meekness and humility and would no longer be addressed as pundits, gurus or swamis. It is such people, therefore, who stand to gain the most from opposing the truth and righteousness and it is they who are perforce infuriated by it. Why indeed should they accept Islam when in doing so they lose their prestige in addition to so many sources of income? Why indeed would they invite so many troubles for themselves, just for the sake of Islam? This is why they reject the truth that is supported by hundreds of arguments and continue clinging onto books that are full of idolatrous teachings. Such is their warped sense of justice that, while they would not accept the guilt of a loose woman accused of indecent behaviour without asking for eyewitness testimony, they are ever ready to malign the holy ones whose piety has been testified to by millions and not just a few. There is no credible proof that the prophets were seen drafting a forged document or that they ever consulted their employees, friends or wives in confidence regarding their quote-unquote treachery or admitted their quote-unquote deceit when death stared them in the face. They, the opponents of the prophets, are ever prepared to make false charges which is a definite sign of their hypocrisy and reveals their inner perversion.
The prophets shamed their enemies by challenging them to find any fault in their impeccable moral character. Hazrat Khatamul Anbiya, the seal of the prophets, may peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, for instance, is quoted in the Holy Quran as saying, فَقَدْ لَبِثْتُ فِيكُمْ أُمُرًا مِنْ قَبْلِهِ أَفَلَا تَعْقِلُونَ That is, I am not the man who tells or fabricates a lie. I have lived among you for forty years. Can you demonstrate that I ever uttered a lie or forged a lie? Why do you not understand? How can a man who has never uttered a lie of any kind up to now start lying about God? Surah Yunus, Part 11 Publisher Note, Surah Yunus, Chapter 10, Verse 17 of the Holy Quran End of Publisher Note Undoubtedly, the lives of the prophets are so transparent and their righteousness is so evident that leaving everything else aside, if we only studied their lives, it would suffice to reveal their truth. For instance, if a reasonable and honest person were to ignore all the proofs and arguments that will be written in this book for establishing the truth of Hazrat Khatam al-Anbiya, the seal of the prophets, may peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, and were to concentrate solely on the events of his life, his heart would certainly be filled with the conviction that he is true in his claim of prophethood. He could not conclude otherwise. For the events of the Holy Prophet wasallam's life are so redolent of truth and purity that the hearts of the seekers after truth are irresistibly drawn towards them. Just think how, to his last breath, the Holy Prophet steadfastly and unwaveringly held on to his claim of prophethood in the face of countless perils and so many enemies, detractors and threateners. The persecution and hardship he endured for years seemed to preclude all possibility of success and were increasing day by day. His patient response to them clearly rules out any plans for material gain. On the contrary, the very moment he made his claim to prophethood, he lost even the little support he already had. With a single announcement, he made innumerable enemies and brought upon himself countless tribulations. He was forced into exile, pursued by bloodthirsty enemies, his home and property were destroyed and repeated attempts were made to poison him. Those who were once his well-wishers turned against him and friends became foes. The severe hardship he endured for so long and with such fortitude could not have been tolerated by a deceiving impostor and when at long last Islam became victorious and a time of ease and prosperity ushered in, he accumulated no wealth, built himself no citadels or mansions, piled up no provisions for luxurious and royal living, and made no personal acquisitions. Rather, he gave away everything to orphans, the needy, widows, and those burdened by debt, while he himself never even enjoyed a full meal. Such was his truthfulness and candor that he did not hesitate to proclaim the heed, oneness of God, even at the cost of antagonizing all the people and tribes, indeed the whole world of idolaters. His own kith and kin were the first to oppose him when he forbade them from worshipping idols. The Jewish community became his bitterest enemy and continuously plotted to assassinate him when he tried to wean them away from diverse forms of creature worship, blind following of the saints, various forms of malpractices and from blaspheming against the Messiah, Jesus. The Christians were similarly antagonized when he declared that, contrary to their beliefs, Jesus was neither God nor the Son of God, nor did he atone for their sins through crucifixion. Fire worshippers and star worshippers were also enraged when he forbade them from worshipping their deities and exhorted them to instead turn to the one God for their salvation.
Now honestly, are these the means by which one could hope to achieve success in this world? If he had worldly ambitions, was it prudent to attack the beliefs of all religions and provoke them in such a way that they were all heartbroken and turned against him? They were so disturbed as to become thirsty for his blood, while he did not have any significant following to defend him against their onslaught. Would it not have been more in keeping with the ways of the world to criticize some and praise others, so that where he had enemies he might also have some friends? For instance, if he had conceded to the Arabs that Lat and Uzzah were true gods, they would have obeyed him and followed him without question, for they were a people who placed great importance on family and tribal affiliations and national honor. They were in agreement with everything the Holy Prophet taught. The only thing he needed was to permit idol worship to win their heartfelt obedience. What worldly expediency could have led the Holy Prophet to alienate one and all for the sake of holding firmly to Tawheed, a creed that was deeply unpopular at the time and the profession of which spelled many a trouble and even the risk of death? And what earthly motive could he have for continuing to insist on the doctrine that had taken away everything from him and the very expression of which could cause new converts to Islam to suffer confinement and torture? How could anyone hope to attain material success by telling people what was against their temperament, customs and beliefs, thereby making them his mortal enemies and not keeping ties with anyone? Is this the way cheats and liars scheme? Do schemers turn their friends into enemies? Do those who plan on gaining material reward through their clever devices challenge the whole world at once and live in constant fear for their lives? Far from it. They are keen to humor everyone and eager to award the certificate of truth to every religion. It is not in their character to show fortitude for the sake of God and take pains to uphold their belief in his oneness and greatness. Indeed, why should they do so when their aim is to lay their nets where the prey is most easily caught and to employ tactics that require the least toil and bring the greatest material gain? Hypocrisy is their profession and flattery their habit. Sweet talk and cultivating the favour of both sides is their favourite principle. They say Allah, Allah with the Muslims as readily as they chant Ram, Ram with the Hindus. They readily agree with everyone. And if a man of power were to say it was night while it was day, they would even point out the moon and stars to please him. They have nothing to do with God and no concern to show fidelity for him. They would never court trials and tribulations to introduce pain and anguish in their happy life. Their mentor teaches them only one thing, to tell everyone that they agree with their beliefs, opinions and understandings. They are not concerned with right or wrong, truth or falsehood and good or evil. Whoever greases their palms is good and virtuous and a gentleman. Whoever praises them to feed their ego is given the glad tidings of salvation, heaven and everlasting life. On the other hand, it is very clear when we study the life of Hazrat Khatam al the seal of the prophets, may peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, that he possessed the highest level of uprightness and integrity. He was ever willing to sacrifice his life for God. He was entirely free from fear or hope from the people and placed his trust only in his Lord. So complete was his submission and devotion to the will of God that he preached his oneness without fear of the calamities that would befall him and the pain and suffering that he would have to endure at the hands of idolaters. In carrying out his Lord's command, he embraced every tribulation, hardship and affliction. Undaunted by threats, he fulfilled all the requirements of spiritual exercise, preaching and exhortation. I tell you truly, 
that throughout the history of all other prophets there is not one who showed such trust in God, preached his oneness, forbade idolatry in the face of so much danger, and remained ever steadfast and firm while facing so many enemies. Anyone who ponders over these events with any degree of honesty will find them bearing witness to the inner truth of the Holy Prophet Upon deeper reflection, a reasonable person will also realize that the age in which the Holy Prophet appeared stood in dire need of a great heavenly reformer and spiritual guide. Author Footnote History clearly testifies as do several verses of the Holy Quran, which God willing I shall proceed to discuss in greater detail in chapter 1, that the Holy Prophet, may peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, appeared in an age when idolatry, creature worship and all kinds of misguided beliefs were rampant in the world. All people had forsaken the true principles and strayed from the right path, and the followers of every religious denomination were merely following the paths of their own invention. The Arabs were steeped in idol worship, the Persians were prostrating before fire, and the Indians had succumbed to hundreds of forms of creature worship in addition to idolatry. It was at that time that several ancient writings and books had been written containing myths whereby scores of men of God were deified, and the foundation was laid for the worship of avatars. Christianity was in the worst state of all, according to the admission of Reverend Davenport and several other Western scholars. It had become severely tainted due to the immorality and faithlessness of its clergy, and its doctrines too raised not one or two, but several to the status of gods. The fact that the Holy Prophet appeared at a time of spiritual decadence, when the need for a great spiritual physician and reformer and extraordinary divine guidance was keenly felt, and with his advent lit the world with the light of Tawheed and righteous conduct, doing away with idolatry and creature worship, which is the mother of all evils, is clear evidence that not only was he a true prophet of God, but was the greatest of all prophets. His truth is evident because in those times of darkness the law of providence demanded a light-bearer, and God's own eternal practice required that he should send a true guide into the world. It is God's eternal law that when suffering and hardship reach their extreme, his mercy is aroused, and he creates the means for the alleviation of the world's woes. For example, when drought causes a severe famine and people are about to perish, God the noble causes rain to fall. When there is an epidemic and thousands begin to die, he causes some means for purifying the air or some remedy to be found. When a nation is in the grip of a tyrant, he is ultimately replaced by a just and benevolent ruler. In the same way, when people forsake the path of God and renounce the heath and worship of God, he raises someone whom he grants perfect vision and honours him with his word and revelation in order to guide mankind and bring about a reformation of the evil that has occurred. The truth is that God is the sustainer on whom depends the existence and continuity of the universe. He does not deprive his creatures of his benevolent attributes nor does he suspend them. Rather, they instantly come into play when they are required. Having arrived at the logical and unavoidable conclusion that whenever a calamity strikes the world, an opposite divine attribute comes into operation to break its hold, and having learnt from history, from the very admission of the opponents of Islam, and from the textual evidence of the Holy Qur'an, that, at the time of the Holy Prophet, may peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, the world was in an upheaval, because all people had turned their backs on the path of Tawheed, sincerity, godliness and having known that the man who delivered the world from the darkness of idolatry and polytheism and established the heath 
was none other than the Holy Prophet wasallam. we cannot help but draw the conclusion that the Holy Prophet wasallam is a true guide from God. In his holy word, Allah the Almighty presents this argument as follows. Tallahi lakadar salna ila umamim min kablika fazayyana lahumush shaytanu a'malahum fahuwa waliyuhumul yawma wa lahum azabun alim. وَمَا أَنزَلْنَا عَلَيْكَ الْكِتَابَ إِلَّا لِتُبَيِّنَ لَهُمُ الَّذِي اخْتَلَفُوا فِيهِ وَهُدًا وَرَحْمَةً لِقَوْمٍ يُؤْمِنُونَ وَاللَّهُ أَنزَلَ مِنَ السَّمَاءِ مَاءً فَأَحْيَا بِهِ الْعَرْضَ بَعْدَ مَوْتِهَا That is, we, Allah, declare by our divinity, the source of all spiritual guidance and sustenance, that we sent messengers to the many tribes and peoples before thee, but those people were misled by the machinations of Satan. So the same Satan is their companion now, and this book has been revealed to settle their differences, and so that the manifest truth should be explained to them. The fact is that the whole earth has died, and Allah sent down water from the sky, and has therewith quickened the earth after its death. That is a sign of the truth of the book for a people who would hear, that is, seek the truth. Surah An-Nahl, part 14. Publish a note, Surah An-Nahl, chapter 16. Verses 64 to 65. End of publisher note. Just consider with what beauty and subtlety the Holy Quran sets out the above mentioned three premises upon which I have rested the truth of the Holy Prophet. First, it likens the hearts of those who had been misguided for centuries to a dry and barren land. It then compares the divine word that is revealed for their guidance to the rainwater that comes fresh from the sky, thus pointing to the eternal law that when the drought reaches its extreme, God mercifully sends down rain and saves mankind from extinction. It is also made plain that it is a law that holds true not only in the physical but also in the spiritual realm. Secondly, the verse makes it clear that before the advent of the Holy Prophet, the whole world was enveloped in darkness. Finally, it describes how this holy word of God revived the spiritually dead. In the end, by asserting that the truth of this book is thereby established, it reminds the seekers after truth that the Holy Quran is the true word of God. This argument does more than prove the truth of Hazrat Khatm Lambiya, the seal of the prophets, may peace and blessings of Allah be upon him. It also establishes his superiority over all other prophets by virtue of the fact that he addressed the entire world and the mission assigned to him was such as would normally be undertaken by thousands of prophets. But since God wanted all children of Adam to become one people and one nation so that there should remain no alienation or estrangement between them and also for the human race to culminate as a single entity just as it had begun, he sent his final teaching as common for the entire world. The time too was ripe because there was increasing communication and interaction between peoples and nations. They were becoming aware of each other's existence and the thoughts and ideas of one influenced the others. 
This process is ongoing and has even accelerated with modern inventions such as railways, telegrams, ships and so forth. All this undoubtedly shows that omnipotent God desires the whole world to unite as one nation. In short, the missions of all past prophets were limited because they were sent to specific peoples, but the mission of the Holy Prophet was boundless and broad because his prophethood was universal. This is also the reason why the Holy Quran contains the refutation of the false beliefs of all religions of the world, while the Gospels were content to address the specific evils of the Jews. The universal nature of the Holy Prophet's ministry thus proves his superiority over other prophets. Just as it is true that there can be no greater good than to root out idolatry and creature worship and to firmly establish the oneness and majesty of God in people's hearts, it is likewise evident that no other prophet ever demonstrated this virtue as perfectly as the Holy Prophet Is there any book in the entire world other than the Holy Qur'an that has established millions of people upon the heath? Thus it is obvious that the greatest of all prophets is the one who brought about such a great reformation. Reverend Pafanda in his book Mizanul Haq writes that when Islam made its appearance, the Christians were steeped in very serious innovations and had ceased to act upon the Gospels. Then referring to our Holy Prophet, may peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, he adds that God did not stop him from spreading the faith for he intended to warn and punish the Christians through him. What justice and what fairness! Imagine how he has manipulated the facts. The clergyman would rather bring down divine chastisement on his own people than accept the prophethood of Muhammad. How pitiable is his prejudice! What an atrocious statement about punishment! Alas! The Padre felt no fear of God in expressing such prejudicial views. Otherwise, it is obvious that it is the height of disbelief, daring and obstinacy to suggest that, finding the world shrouded in error and misguidance, God plunged it into even greater error. One wonders at the honesty and piety of these clerics who, in their hostility towards the Holy Prophet, do not hesitate to deny that God is the source of all guidance. Surely no reasonable person can ever believe that at a time when error and misguidance were pandemic and people were immersed in idolatry and creature worship, the best plan that God could think of was to make their condition even worse and to impose upon them someone who, instead of correcting their ways, would plunge them, as the priest alleges, into even greater misguidance by declaring that God did not pollute himself with blood and filth by entering into a woman's womb, was and is above and beyond being born in human form, pain, agony and death. Can anyone honestly think, or the conscience of any honest person accept, that such are the attributes of the noble and merciful God, and that he responds to the prevailing evil in the world by plunging them into a far deeper abyss of misguidance? Any rational person can understand that when ignorance and misguidance spreads in the world, it requires a reformer. Any sensible person can clearly see that a manifestation of God's attribute of guidance is needed at the time of widespread misguidance and corruption. But how can those who are blinded by prejudice be made to see? Alas, the clergymen who exhibit such obduracy seem to have no fear of the day of reckoning. And why should they when they rely on the atonement of their sins through the Messiah? Otherwise it is unreasonable to believe that the clergy can be so ignorant of the eternal divine practice of God and believe that God, who sent his messenger at the time of Musa, Moses, 
because a religious community was misguided and enthralled to a tyrant and sent the Messiah at the time of Hazrat Isa, Jesus, without delay, when he saw the Jews engrossed in relatively minor vices, became so hard-hearted in later days that, finding the world steeped in idolatry, he gave no thought to sending down his guidance and instead pushed the misguided people further into error as if he used to hate error in earlier days but had now started to love it. Author. End of footnote. Upon deeper reflection, a reasonable person will also realize that the age in which the Holy Prophet wasallam, appeared stood in dire need of a great heavenly reformer and spiritual guide and that the teachings he brought were certainly true and met all the needs of the time and encompassed all the requirements of the age. So effective and forceful was his teaching that thousands were drawn towards the truth and the words La ilaha illallah there is none worthy of worship except Allah, were engraved upon their hearts. The ultimate purpose of prophethood, which is to impart teachings that lead to salvation, was accomplished to perfection by the Holy Prophet ﷺ. This is far more than what any other prophet had ever achieved. Anyone pondering over this will spontaneously testify that the Holy Prophet Muhammad ﷺ is the true guide sent by God, there is no cure for those who persist in denial out of prejudice and stubbornness. Such people deny even the existence of God, but it is impossible to show in the life of any other prophet even one of those signs of truth as are found to the brim in the Holy Prophet ﷺ. If someone thinks otherwise, let him come forward. There is nothing easier than making tall claims, and no one can be stopped from uttering nonsense, but if the norms of justice and fairness are to be followed, a reasoned argument has to be countered with reason. Our opponents are unmistakable masters in the art of abuse, slander and mockery and seem to have mastered the art of undue criticism and insult from some mentor. The Hindus sing the praises of the Vedas, considering them to be the sum total of all guidance, while denying the truthfulness of all other scriptures and prophets. Also, the Christians consider the Gospels to be the last word, forgetting that the merit of a scripture can only be measured by the extent to which it establishes God's oneness. A book that excels in establishing the oneness of God can alone be judged higher in status. This is why a denier of Tawheed, even if he is a paragon of virtue, cannot attain salvation. Hence, these people should first ask themselves which of these books has done the most to promote the concept of God's oneness upon which salvation depends. Can the Vedas boast one country in which they have introduced the oneness of God? Can they point to one tract of land on the face of the earth where the Rig, the Yajur, the Sham and the Atharvan have established the concept of the Heed, the oneness of God? The only impact of the Vedas we see in India is in the form of fire worship, sun worship, worship of Vishnu and creature worship, the mere mention of which is repugnant. You may survey India from end to end, everywhere you will find Hindus engrossed in creature worship. While some worship Mahadeva, others sing hymns in praise of Krishna, and yet others worship idols and images. The case of the Gospels is no different. There is no land in which they became the means for spreading the heath. On the contrary, its followers consider monotheists unworthy of salvation. Their priests give monotheists tidings of a dark inferno where there will be much wailing and gnashing of teeth. According to them, only those will be saved from it who believe that God suffers death, suffering, hunger, thirst, pain, and that he entered a mortal body and became flesh. 
otherwise there is no hope of salvation. In other words, they believe that the paradise of their imagination will be divided among the two great nations of Europe, the British and the Russians, while all monotheists will be cast into hell for the crime of considering God to be free from every fault and imperfection. What I am trying to demonstrate by writing all this is that the Heath in its purest form is not to be found among any people on the face of the earth except the followers of the Holy Prophet, may peace and blessings of Allah be upon him. And there is no book upon the earth other than the Holy Quran that has firmly committed millions to this holy doctrine and that leads mankind so reverentially towards the one true God. People of every religion have created artificial gods for themselves, whereas the God of the Muslims is the one eternal and immutable God whose attributes are the same today as they were before. All this goes to show the truth of the prophethood of the founder of Islam beyond any shadow of doubt, for it is only in his blessed person that the essence and purpose of prophethood is demonstrably fulfilled. Just as a creator is recognized through his creation, so do the wise and knowledgeable recognize this divine reformer by the reformation he has brought about. There are countless other signs to prove that the holy prophet enjoyed a divine support. For instance, is it anything less than a miracle that a poor, helpless, unlettered orphan came with such an enlightened teaching at a time when powerful nations prided themselves on their economic, military and intellectual strength, that he rendered them speechless with his flawless logic and arguments and even pointed out the blunders of their so-called scholars and philosophers? And did he not, despite his vulnerable state, bring down mighty rulers and replace them with common people? If this was not a sign of divine help, then what else was it? Is it possible for anyone to overcome the whole world in reason, knowledge, power and strength without divine support? Let us go back to the time when the Holy Prophet announced to the people of Mecca in the beginning that he was a prophet of God. Who was with him? Which royal treasure had he acquired to embolden him to take on the whole world in such a way? Or had he put together an army to protect himself against all the hostile monarchs? Even our opponents know that he was alone and helpless. Only God, who had raised him for a great purpose, was at his side. Further, it should be noted that he never attended any academy or graduated from a school and never had any occasion to study the scriptures of the Christians, Jews, Aryas and other religions. So, if the Holy Quran did not originate from God, how did it come to exhibit such sublime and universal divine truths and certainties who was the peerless philosopher who filled the Holy Qur'an with flawless theological arguments that had eluded and frustrated all the logicians, rationalists and philosophers who remained immersed in misguidance until their last breath? And how could such reason discourses whose truth and profundity would put the arrogant philosophers of Greece and India to shame have issued forth from the lips of a helpless unlettered person? Is there any other prophet who showed so many proofs of his truth? Is there any scripture on the face of the earth that can compete with the Holy Quran in all these respects or a prophet who underwent all that the Holy Prophet did? In particular, it is a futile exercise to prove even the historical existence of the rishis to whom the Vedas were supposedly revealed, let alone to show any sign of their truth. Gentlemen, I appeal to your sense of reason and justice that you should either produce from your scriptures such true and rationally compelling arguments as I shall produce from the Holy Quran, beginning with chapter 1, or else show some modesty and decency and stop slandering. But above all, if you have any fear of God and desire for salvation, you must believe 
in Islam. Having set out all the preliminary points that I had intended, I shall now conclude this preface. The main text of the book will follow, wherein arguments for the divine origin of the Holy Quran and truthfulness of the Holy Prophet shall be laid down in detail. These arguments, whose excellence and incontrovertible nature has compelled me to include in this book a challenge of 10,000 rupees to anyone who can refute them, shall be adduced from the Holy Quran itself. This method of presenting rational arguments solely on the basis of word of God is in itself a criterion that marks a clear distinction between us Muslims and our opponents and should be enough to open the eyes of every reasonable person. It is a guiding light that will readily tell apart the truthful from the liar. To all those who deny Islam, I would say that if they have any reservations in accepting the Holy Quran as the true word of God and admitting its superiority, they are under obligation to disprove these proofs and arguments on the basis of their own scriptures. Otherwise, you are aware and any honest person understands that once the truth and superiority of a divine book has been established through hundreds of arguments, it is unfair and completely indecent and depraved to malign it and label it as the word of man unless one has successfully countered those arguments or produced another book that equals it in its excellences. At this point I would also like to make it clear that once this book is published, those who give no thought to refuting my arguments like the righteous, be they Christians, Hindus, Brahmus, Majists, or of any other creed, and continue to misguide the masses by attributing impurity to the pure fountainhead of Islam through their newspapers, magazines, public addresses and writings, or criticize the teachings of the Holy Quran in their homes, such actions on their part will be considered dishonest and unrighteous. I have established the divine origin and truth of the glorious Quran with incontrovertible arguments and removed all the doubts and objections arising in the minds of the short-sighted. And, what is more, I have offered a substantial reward to anyone who can disprove these arguments. They are welcome to ask for an officially attested promissory note to reassure themselves in this regard. In short, I have acted in a very honest and transparent manner, but if they still evade this straightforward method of discussion and argumentation, whereby they are assured of a reward if they win, and instead go about making false allegations upon Islam to incite the ignorant, the youth and the masses against Islam, I cannot help but conclude that they are ill-intentioned and unscrupulous. Gentlemen, I beseech you to set aside your prejudices and embrace the truth. Fear God and do not set your hearts upon this temporal abode. This short life is but a chance for you to sow the seeds for the hereafter. Do not waste it in pursuit of false doctrines and baseless whims. Do not waste the precious moments of life. This world is transient. Do not be enamoured with it. These joys are not forever. Do not become heedless on their account. The pleasantries of this lowly life are for a few moments. In the end, you have to face Allah the Almighty. This world is an abode of separation, death and decay. Whoever comes here has to leave. Go visit the graveyard for a while and ask the dwellers how they are. Ask them, what is the final outcome of the worldly life? How long does a living being survive? Stay away from malice, arrogance, boasting and coquetry. 
so that you save yourself from being led to an evil end. Once you depart this world, you will never come back to these cities and countries. O heedless one, feel the plight of faith, because your salvation depends entirely on faith. Beware, take not this pain light, for you have a difficult task before you. Let your heart bleed in pain and anguish, not just the heart, sacrifice your life as well. All your dealings should be with that one being. Alas, how can you be content without him? Turning away from him will cause your ruin. Your prosperity lies in turning towards him in humility. So why do you cut off relationship with such a loving friend? Why do you act with such foolishness? This world is like a carcass. Greedy ones surround it like dogs. Fortunate is he who turns his back on this carcass and turns his face towards the Lord. He abides by justice, closing his eyes to everyone, and does not care if, for the friend, he lives or dies. The torrent of greed, avarice and temptation lasts so long as one is blind. But when the inner eye is opened, even a little, one becomes totally disinclined towards greed. O you who give long reign to your greed, why do you not curb your ego? The wealth of life decreases every moment, but all you think of is wealth and property. Your ties of kith and kin are full of deception. Have you cut your ties with God for their sake? All of them are bent upon taking your life. At times they kill you peacefully and at times through combat. Cursed are the relations that cut you off from the true friend. You will need him ultimately and find that there is none whom you can help nor one who can help you. Take each step warily so that you depart from this world in truth so that God should become your friend and should look upon you kindly, so that you drink the wine of his love and be totally inebriated with it. This world is not the place to live forever. Tread carefully lest you come to a bad end. The love of the living one will increase your light. What benefit can you derive from the love of the dead? The food, the belly, the head, the crown are all God's gifts. Render to the creator the rights that are due to him and show some remorse before you leave this world. How can you, being human, turn your back on him when even a dog shows loyalty to its benefactor? Fear the great and almighty God. The more one knows him, the more one fears him. While the evil ones remain occupied in misdeeds, the righteous remain busy in prayer and supplication. How fortunate is the eye that sheds tears for him! How blessed is the heart that burns with his love! Blessed is he who seeks the beloved and turns away from all for his sake. 
whosoever treads the path of the one and only God, that God suffices for him in both the worlds. Truly, he who seeks to please God cuts off all other relationships for his sake. To sacrifice himself for him becomes his habit. He even bids farewell to his life. He loses himself in God's will and for his sake prefers obscurity and self-negation. He is content with the will of his Lord and the decree that he has pronounced. You love others along with God, this is the root of misguidance. If you were wise and brave, you would forsake everything else and devote yourself solely to him. The fact is that you need only one beloved, as you have one heart and one life, so does one beloved suffice. Whoever takes someone as a beloved considers his life to be a small price to pay. He finds his threshold as more blissful than an orchard and his face more comely than the basil flower. He is well pleased with howsoever the beloved treats him. To look upon his beloved is better than to live a hundred lives. To be in the presence of his beloved, even if bound in chains, is more precious to him than strolling in a delightful garden without him. He who has a beloved finds no peace without him. In his absence he tosses and turns all night. While the world is lost in sleep, he remains awake. He finds not a moment's rest without seeing him. Every moment he is carried away by the torrent of love. How indeed should a lover find peace and how could he ever think of separation from the beloved? The beauty of the beloved whispers into his heart a secret that cannot be told. Such indeed is in the nature of these lovers, they are always true to their Lord. Their lives are illuminated by the light of truth and conviction, their foreheads shine brilliantly with a light divine. They are successful, though unmindful of the worldly joys. They are the sagacious ones who fly far away from the temporal net. Freed from the self and ego, they become the focus of divine light. They give their heart to their God and free their inner selves from all else. Their hearts are freed from the trespasses of others, for he, their friend, has taken abode in their heart and soul. They have dedicated this world and the hereafter to him. They lie humbly like dust at his threshold. The goblet of their heart shatters into bits. The fragrance of the beloved emanates from their hearts. The friend wipes out all signs of their own being when he manifests himself to them. Finally he alone emerges from the recesses of their soul. If they could reveal the fire that blazes in their hearts, smoke would rise from Majnoon's grave. In comparison, Majnoon's fire of love would appear as mere smoke. They are oblivious to their own being. They live in utmost humility for the sake of the friend. 
All people attend to their own affairs, but the lovers care only for the beloved. Everyone is concerned with his own honour, but they are only jealous for the honour of the friend. Woe to you who have turned your back on the faith. Nothing but enmity and malice is the gain of your life. You are slave to your enmity and mischief and do not listen to reason and fairness. You are proud of your arrogance and ostentation and transgress the bounds of faith. Being unblessed with the light that God grants, your mind and reason have been totally perverted. You consider it worship to utter heresies and treat misconduct as virtue. You have covered your eyes with a hundred veils and yet you ask where is the sun. Lift your veils and see what is right before you. Your blindness does indeed cause me great sadness. You have turned your back on the gracious and the benefactor. O ignorant one, what manner of showing your gratitude is this? Infatuated with this wretched worldly abode, will ultimately deprive you of your faith. To leave the threshold of God is a great infidelity. Do not give your heart to another, for God is jealous of his oneness. You willfully transgress against God. Alas, what calamity you bring upon yourself. O weak of faith, whatever resides in your heart, other than God, is an idol. Beware of such hidden idols and free yourself from their clutches. What good is the idolater who, like a loose woman, takes thousands of lovers? Be truthful and make honesty your profession. Adopt the side of truth in everything you do. Truth will open your eyes. Truth will reunite you with the lost friend. Truthful is he who, with perfect certainty, adopts the faith that is pure and impregnable. Islam alone is that holiest of faiths, revealed by God whose knowledge is perfect. Since the objective of faith is to pull one away from falsehood towards the truth. This is the peculiarity of the Holy Qur'an, all of its teachings are firmly established upon sound arguments. It lights the way to the one Lord with luminous signs and proofs. If I had the means, I would have written these arguments in gold ink. Allah be praised, Allah be praised, what a holy faith is Islam, the perfect embodiment of God's grace. It is the sun of truth, nay, by God it shines brighter than the sun. It takes one out of darkness and ignorance and brings towards the lights of nearness to God. It shows the seekers after truth the path to righteousness and righteousness wins the pleasure of God. If you at all fear God the just, embrace Islam and fear not mere mortals. If you attain to the grace of the Holy Land, 
What fear would the curses and taunts of the mere mortals cause you? People's curses are easy to bear. The real curse is that which falls from the gracious God. Having set down all the essential points, it seems appropriate to conclude this preface by enumerating the various advantages that are to be gained from studying this book, so that those who hold the truth dear may have glad tidings of their spiritual beloved, and those who crave righteousness will find the path to their heart's desire. These advantages are of six kinds as explained below. The first advantage in this book is that it is not deficient in discussing the essentials of faith, Rather, it comprises all the verities upon which these principles are based and all the lofty truths that are collectively described as Islam. This means that the readers shall acquire a comprehensive understanding of the essentials of Islam and become immune to the ploys of impostors and deceivers. Rather, they will become excellent teachers and astute guides for others. The second advantage is that this book contains 300 strong and compelling arguments in support of the truth and principles of Islam. The truth of this faith will become evident to every seeker after truth, except of course those who are completely blinded by prejudice and dwell in its darkness. The third advantage is that this book responds to all the doubts and misgivings caused by our opponents, be they Jews, Christians, Zoroastrians, Arya Samajists, Brahmo Samajists, idol worshippers, atheists, naturalists, freethinkers, or agnostics. Not only have their objections been thoroughly refuted, but the very points that the ignorant critics found objectionable have been presented as evidence of the Holy Quran's superiority over other scriptures, and this superiority too has been proven so conclusively as to turn the tables right upon the critics. Moreover, it does not confine itself merely to responding to the objections, rather it demonstrates that the matters which the ignorant critics consider to be objectionable are, in reality, such that they prove the superiority of the teachings of the Holy Quran over other scriptures. This superiority has been established with such cogent arguments that the critic himself turns into the object of criticism. The fourth advantage is that as against the principles of Islam, the principles of other faiths have also been thoroughly and rationally scrutinized and all their false doctrines and creeds have been shown in stark contrast to the true principles of the Holy Quran. The beauty of a precious gem, after all, is all the more appreciated when set in contrast. The fifth advantage in this book is that those who read this book will become cognizant of the truths and subtleties of the Holy Quran. Furthermore, the wisdom and deep insight of the holy book, the Qur'an, whose illuminating radiance is the source of Islam's light, shall become evident to all. For all the arguments and truths that are recorded herein have been derived from the sublime verses of the holy Qur'an itself. I have not given any rational arguments other than those presented by God himself in his own word. It is in this manner that almost twelve parts of the holy Qur'an have been quoted in this book. Hence, it may aptly be called a comprehensive commentary upon the subtleties, verities, profound secrets, wise principles, and sublime philosophy of the holy book. Any truth-loving person who goes through it will see the beauty and grandeur of the matchless book of Allah, the Almighty, like the bright sun. The sixth advantage is that this book argues its points in a very solid, reasoned, and balanced fashion, but without compromising the requirements of grace and lucidity. This manner of argumentation will prove to be an excellent means of fostering knowledge and lending maturity to thought and perception. 
The study and use of sound rational arguments sharpens the intellect. The understanding of subtle points helps enhance the power of comprehension and the exercise of proper argumentation establishes one's mind squarely upon the truth. It also helps to develop and perfect the ability to discern the basis and real truth of every point of contention which is essential for the perfect development of our intellectual faculties and on which depends the honour and prestige of the human self. Here ends all that we intended to write in this preface. All praise belongs to Allah who guided us in all this, but for his guidance we would never be guided aright. The end of the preface. Facsimile of the back page of the first edition for part 2, printed in 1880. Brahin Ahmadiyya, entitled Al-Brahinul Ahmadiyya, Ala Hakikat, Kitabullah Ul-Quran, Wal-Nabuwatul Muhammadiyya. Discourses on the Divine Origin of the Holy Quran and the Apostleship of Muhammad, the Prophet of Islam, by Mirza Ghulam Ahmad Saab, Chief of Qadian. Gurdaspur District, Punjab. Amritsar, printed at the Safira Hind Press, Amir Ali Dolla Printer, 1880. This book, which is compiled after a most careful and elaborate investigation for the benefit and conviction of those dissenters who deny the veracity of Islamism, is published with an offer of 10,000 rupees for its refutation, subject to the conditions contained in the preface. Author.